Uh, welcome, Pathfinders, to the Find the Path podcast, After Party Live number five. Hello. <laughs> That's the part where everyone gets excited. Um, <laughs> I am your host, uh, Rick Sandich. I am joined by my wonderful co-host, Rachel Sandich, over there Hello. on the side. Uh, and between us here, uh, digitally speaking, is <laughs> Gary S. Gary, uh, being a, a longtime patron, a uh, follower of the podcast and all the rest of that stuff. And uh, so we invited Gary on today to join us for this uh, after party as we kind of discuss um, sort of metagaming as a whole, but really uh, character knowledge versus player knowledge and all of the rest of that. Um, lots of fun topics to kind of engage ourselves in. So, well, first off, welcome to the uh, the podcast, Gary. Thank you very much. It's very kind uh, for you to have me on here. And oh, yeah. uh, it's, hi, everyone. It's hopefully... Uh, you all will have a chance to uh, enjoy the, or have a chance to answer, ask some questions in it. I think this will be an interesting topic. It's like metagame is kind of like the eternal RPG question, right? Uh, but, yes. <laughs> uh, we're, I don't think we're going to try to even solve the problem today, but we can talk about some of it, though. <laughs> no, the plan is to solve the problem with metagaming, and then we'll move on to alignment. <laughs> there you go. Uh, <laughs> oh, oh that'll yeah. need more than one session. <laughs> well, maybe two. <laughs> yes, if we're if we're going through and uh, and burning down every various topic that has been uh, been plaguing the the universe of tabletop RPGs since its inception, right? But yeah, Gary, why don't you take a second to tell the uh, the they generally know um, who uh, Rachel and I are and yeah. uh, well, I uh, to share a little bit about yourself. Yeah, so my name is Gary. Uh, I don't really do much in the RPG space. I'm like a self-employed computer nerd, basically. Uh, I have been listening to find the path since like episode seven. I think I, I don't really remember. I do remember I listened to a few episodes and then the next one came out like right after, but it wasn't, it was a long time ago and I've been listening uh, every, ever since I don't really listen to that many actual plays mainly because uh, find the path sets a pretty high standard. Oh, I'm not. You. I'm not even exaggerating. It's always pleasant to hear. Yeah. I'll try <laughs> listening to something and I'm just like, Hmm, just doesn't just doesn't cut it uh, uh but in any case doesn't uh, have enough talking mechanical fish that's the problem with this podcast <laughs> <laughs> that was even late in the game right yeah exactly that's that that's true um so but i mean aside from uh, a boring work life it's like i've been playing uh rpgs since off and on uh, admittedly since 1991 or 1981 sorry uh with the original um not the original basic D&D set, but the original box set that had the basic and expert rules mm -hmm. uh, they got for Christmas. And then I played uh, pretty much every version of AD&D since then, except second. Uh, and then I played like all of TSR's old games, like Star Frontiers and all of that nonsense, like all of their percentile based games. All the classics. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> I, I get a soft spot for some of those wonky games. Uh, I, and, and they're not even necessarily so wonky. It's like they're interesting to look at now. And I played uh, tons of other systems too, like Shadowrun. Like we talked briefly, I'm wearing a Traveler shirt. I love uh, many editions of Traveler. Uh, and <clears throat> uh, even up to 5th edition d and I, I play current. I, one game I haven't actually played, though I do have the rules, is Pathfinder 2nd edition. Yeah. Uh, played a fair amount of Pathfinder 1st, but the game that I love the most and the one I've played the most, unfortunately, has been the revised 3rd edition or 3.5, as everyone likes to call it. And uh, I think that was the that was that's my favorite. But I, I played. I mean, at one time, 
no lie, uh, a friend of mine and I ran or participated, both of us ran or participated in four games a week for over a year. <laughs> wow. It, it was oh, crazy. I remember those days. Yeah, that was our that was our <laughs> hobby life was to it was either that or tabletop Warhammer. And uh, if we weren't playing Warhammer, we played D&D. So, yeah, or some role playing game. It wasn't always D&D. But, I, but it, I back in uh, my early 20s, I hit the uh, the seven day streak one time. Of uh, I was in a game every every night for seven days consecutive. Gosh! So um, I, I wow. ran four of those and then played in three. So uh, those were the days. Those uh, those wonderful days. Yeah. Um, but yeah. So again, uh, Gary was able to select any topic that he wanted to have a discussion on, and uh, I've really enjoyed these because it's kind of hit on topics that we don't um, normally address quite as much. Um, again, with the the whole conspiracy theory angle that we did last month, and then this time talking. Um, even before we actually got on, when uh, we were chatting before we started the recording here, um, we were kind of talking about whether or not metagame is actually the thing that we're wanting to talk about here. And it's mostly because, as we were just saying, um, there is a certain negative association with the term metagaming. And it may not even actually fully apply to a few of the things that we're talking about, which is more of this idea of player knowledge versus character knowledge. Um, it occurs to me now that I really think that the and the difference there is uh, implementation. Um, metagaming has a negative connotation because it's kind of like... Um, Taking you know, advantage. Well, it's, it's almost like um, counting the cards, right? you know, when you're gambling. Yeah. It's like counting the cards is something that you can do, but the implementation of counting the cards is when you run into a problem. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I figured it'd be a, a fun, interesting topic of conversation that we could address. And of course, um, as was mentioned earlier, we at the end of this, we are, of course, going to be doing a Q&A. So if you have any questions, uh, any of your own thoughts or anything else or things that you want us to delve into further, uh, feel free to leave those uh, questions in the chat and we'll get back around to those. Uh, this is, of course, a, a live stream for us. So if you're having uh, any issues with the audio or vid video elements or anything like that, uh, please give us a little shout out um, over in the uh, the comments there and I'll do what I can adjust on my end. Um, so I say we just jump right into it. Let's uh, let's dive in feet first, as it were. That sounds good. No preparation. We'll just go in cold and just uh, make it up as we go along. I think Absolutely. Great. Ignore the fact that I'm looking at this list I've got off to the side. <laughs> <laughs> what sticky notes? I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> no, no. Anyway, let's go ahead and just jump into things here. I widely di divided uh, the subject, the idea of separating character knowledge. I separated, as you were, um, elements of uh, separating character knowledge uh, from player knowledge. And so... Um, I think our first element of this is uh, when, Gary, when you mentioned this as a topic that you're interested in talking about, um, I believe you stated as a uh, quote, I, I liked it, you stated it very eloquently here, the uh, difficulties and delights of knowing a tremendous amount about a game setting or campaign, but then trying to firewall that knowledge from a character's portrayal in play. Um, I also appreciate that I could get an element of that, uh, um, you know, computer there when you're like firewall <laughs> sorry it bleeds into everything <laughs> oh trust me i i very much understand how work work life and not work life can bleed over into one another yeah um so uh speaking of bleed uh, you then went on to say uh i noticed that it has a tendency to bleed whenever a subject of a particular deity comes up or discussion about uh what behavior particularly particular alignments might allow and so uh, i figured that's a good place to kind of start is um again i've been running games in the Pathfinder setting literally since uh, the first book of Rise of the Rune Lords came out. 
Um, actually, literally a little bit before that, because uh, I ran some of the early uh, modules that Biza put out back when it was still the Game Mastery line. Right. And so I do have a fairly extensive knowledge pertaining towards uh, Pathfinder. Um, if you can't see over my shoulder back behind me is yes. uh, I used to run in the Forgotten Realms. And so I've got the Forgotten Realms books um, up over my left shoulder back there. And I ran into a similar problem with the Forgotten Realms where um, it's off screen here, but I've got about 90 something novels um, that I've read that took place in the Forgotten Realms. And so, you know, I did know the secret history between, you know, um, uh, Corlon Loratheon and Loth or Loth, depending on how you want to pronounce. I'm sure some people are like, he pronounced um, both of their names terribly. <laughs> uh, and so it is sometimes you have so much knowledge um, of a setting that it does, you know, negatively impact or not even necessarily negative impact, but it does have an impact on the way that you play a character. Um, I think you're kind of referencing uh, Abadar there with your comment. <laughs> yeah. I, so, I, I mean, it's first off, let me let me say I apologize if anyone thought if it, if it came across to anyone and I don't necessarily mean either of you, but to anyone involved in the podcast, it was certainly not a criticism oh. uh, because I understand how it is to get involved in something like when I, I'm the sort of player. Uh, for good or bad who if if i can get if i can find the right character i am that character while i'm playing right mm -hmm. i mean if that character gets mad i am unreasonably mad which is <laughs> makes it difficult to play sometimes yeah. uh but by, by the same token it's like i you know I, I will take npc actions personally until i have a chance to realize Deep that i need press. to yeah <laughs> that i need to you know grow up basically it's like, no, this is a game it's okay for the character to be mad but you shouldn't be uh in any case i didn't mean for it to i, I hope it didn't come across as being no no absolutely but and um i i think you, you hit on a very good thing right there where um sometimes it is difficult to separate the character because if it's a if it's a good character then you've put something of yourself into it yeah and so it's uh it's difficult not to go this guy yeah. you know when uh whenever i'm playing some sort of ridiculously abrasive npc or something like that again see war for the crown uh, right. except for everyone there it's too polite to say anything about what's going manners. on yes. yeah um <laughs> they do worry what the neighbors think i mean and with good reason yeah. perhaps <laughs> and, and again i i always want to reiterate a little bit off uh off topic there but i always do want to reiterate that you know we appreciate um any form of constructive criticism because sure. our goal is to improve and the right. only way that you can improve is by receiving feedback right right yeah so i i was thinking i i mean the the specifics i think of what i had in mind or uh, a certain person's uh, uh, <laughs> aversion to Abadar, or uh, another—it's it, it, not the when Abadar hasn't been present, like in Mummy's Mask, for example. Like mm -hmm. Abadar had a very limited presence in in uh, Mummy's Mask, and yet there were comments made about Priest of Abadar, and it's like, <laughs> okay, I, I guess, yeah. um, you know, or um, I, I have heard this sort of thing, like especially in uh, Tyrant's Grasp, with like about Norgerber and stuff, and. Some of it probably just comes down to my style of of play. Like I, oh, people play things differently than I do. Like if I'm running a game, it's like I like the, I, I think it's fine to, to have some knowledge about the gods and stuff. But I mean they're gods, right? They're not like yeah. a 20th level NPC. It's like nope, it's a god. They can pretty much do whatever they want, and uh, with the reason that they obey uh, a certain strictures because they've all kind of come to a consensus. That, that will yeah. more or less do this unless you're grotus or whatever right so yeah. <laughs> uh <laughs> uh or, or rovagug maybe but um it's the whole idea that gods adhere to the idea of nuclear deterrence 
Yeah. But I, <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's like the mutually assured destruction is what keeps them from just from, you know, taking too many liberties. But it, it, it's not particularly egregious, but it, it made me think of um, because like you like I have almost all of the third edition Forgotten Realms books. I have I have literally every Eberron book from third edition because that was the setting that I ran the most. And um, I have a fair number of Pathfinder ones, but it's like I have a lot of other setting. I have like Planescape and stuff, even though I haven't really played second edition. Um, and I, I had devoured like with the Forgotten Realms. It's like I knew a lot about it, especially in Ebron. It's like I know all the secrets and I yeah. know the details of the gods or th- whether there are or not and stuff. And it's like it's kind of hard to like it's one thing like when it's the three of us, for example, sitting here talking, we could BS all day about, you know, which God is better or whatever. And that's great. That's a, it's a great pub fight discussion, mm. right? It's like, uh, we're, I, 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 what was, Oh, pub, um, bargument, I think is the term I heard from a friend. <laughs> yeah. It, it's the sort of thing where it's like, you want to go to a bar, you have a couple of drinks with your friends and you guys are going to get into an argument about the topic. Yeah. Um, but during, during gameplay, Anytime like, somebody brings up uh, religion or politics, right? Right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you're, you're wanting a fight at that point. Yeah. Yeah. You're just asking for it or looking to get into one. But I think with, uh, with gameplay, it's like, it can be tougher, right? Like it's, to to keep that information from bleeding into your your character's behavior and i yes. think that's really that's really where it comes into because it's like your if if your character starts ask acting on information that they wouldn't normally or or kind of like how could they have knowledge of this sorts of thing like how could they actually know that the king of Karnath is actually a vampire for example it's like spoilers for everyone um how would they know it's a secret that's been kept for like 80 years or hundred years or stuff. It's like, how would the average Joe PC first level guy, how would he know this? And it's like, it's one thing to know it. And it's another thing to, to, to act on it, I guess. And, uh, Absolutely. I, I, I haven't heard anyone actually act necessarily other than just to, you know, perhaps be a little, uh, less friendly to a little less ZDs, friendly. For example. The, yeah. Yes. Which, which, I mean, you could chalk up to, it's like, particularly if a character is like, worshiping one of the old uh, forgotten gods that you one could make the case it's like you know it's like they're out of favor now because the new gods are more popular and it's like i kind of just don't like any of the new guys uh yeah that's, that's a thing so but you know it, it's not like it was an egregious uh anything worthy of a fine or anything, yeah. <laughs> anything so, like that but well yeah. so I, I think i think we've kind of, we've kind of established there the um you know what Exactly what we're talking about when we're talking about this idea of separating character, especially when it comes to the setting, um, where it is just, if you played in two or three adventure paths, you know so much about the world that you just absorb as you're going through these stories that you're like, well, I know this about the setting. Actually, we could kind of clump that into a, a couple of different of categories here. There's setting knowledge that you know that informs the uh, the character's personality or all the rest of that stuff when you're making the character. So for instance, if you're sitting down and just going like, I as a player already don't like Abadar, so let me go ahead and make a character that doesn't like Abadar. Um, Or using uh, even Mummy's Mask, for instance, um, many of the characters had a very negative opinion of Serenrae because Serenrae was the primary faith of the Kelish people and they were responsible for um, the Interregum and the suppressing of, you know, the Church of Serenrae was um, simultaneously responsible for um, backing the uh, the institutions that basically outlawed the original faiths of Osirian and were also simultaneously responsible for coming in the cult of the Dawnflower, coming in and restoring those liberties. And so making a character that has that knowledge, um, especially if it's common knowledge for the region when you're playing Mummy's Mask, is great. Yeah. 
but then making a a barbarian from the uh, the lands of the Norm Kings that has no ranks in knowledge religion or no you know isn't trained in religion in second edition and doesn't like the faith of Serenre because of what they did to the Osirians. Yeah, that's kind of different. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a little little bit of a stretch, right? I mean. It's like someone's going to have to work really hard. If I re- if they would do that in my game, they'd have to work really hard to sell it to me. So, so I suppose the first question I kind of have for it is, um, what are the kind of what are the positives of having um, setting knowledge and using that to influence a character? I think I just mentioned one of them right there, which is when you're making a character, if you already know that information pertaining towards the Church of Serenre and their involvement in Osirian, if you're making a character from Osirian, then even before you start the game, you have a bit of knowledge that you can draw on to make that character more invested in the setting that you're in. Right. Yeah. And which I think is a great way of putting it. It's like, it allows you, I mean, having that kind of knowledge, this is, this is the, definitely the, the benefit to it is man, you can make, even if you're the sort of person who doesn't like my character backstories are like a paragraph, right? Maybe mm-hmm. if, if the, <laughs> if the referee is lucky. Um, but it's like, I, I might be, I can ground them in the setting, right? Like mm-hmm. I, maybe I could play the, the Serenre, a uh, priest who is here to make recompense as he as they can to Osiriani, right? It's like uh, to the Domflower who's trying uh, to a Domflower sect or whatever that is trying to to help redress some of the problems that they caused as they can and try to work, understanding that the Osiriani people are going to be or the Osirian people are going to be upset. It's like, uh, but I I feel like regardless, it's like I think you can use that knowledge to really, even if it's not to to slap a lot of details down on the page, but you can use key points definitely to really ground your character in, in a thing, right? Yeah. Like if you know the details about uh, Absalom or even like uh, Vrizia, which is where most of my characters end up coming from, unfortunately, um, it's like when you know a lot of the details about it, it's like you can just have random facts that, that if someone asks you a question about where you're from, just as the typical uh, player-to-player communication as they're trying to get a feel for each other's characters, it's like you can drop common knowledge for common for someone from Brizia or Absalom or wherever, yeah. you could just drop that in play, right? And yeah. and and say, well, yeah, I mean, this is common. And the the little town that I grew up in, man, everyone knows this because you know it's kind of a big deal for us, or or whatever. I think it just it helps create a more uh, immersive experience when you do know some of those little details like that. Yeah. Like again, I yeah. grew up in not a small town, but there were definitely things that just people knew and. I will say that sometimes it does take me out of the experience when my character is, you know, born and raised in a city and, uh, you know, Rick will bring up something and I literally have to stop and go, does my character know this? Yeah. And (laughs) it kind of takes you out of it a little bit. So like having a little bit more of that information, I think facilitates the role play too. Like I can keep going with the conversation without having to be like, Hey, do I know this? And then having to like, then redirect it because it, it, it takes you out of the moment. Yeah. Yeah, I actually I think you make an excellent point that I should have or that I wish that I had made actually because because the <laughs> well, it's that, a discussion everyone's allowed to make these points. Yeah, yeah, no, but I mean have a back I, and forth. I think Rachel brings up the, the the key part of why I I feel like there can be a problem with it because for me what I like most is to be immersed when I'm playing. I like a referee yeah. who can immerse me in the game and I like having a character that I can feel in contact with so I can be in the game when I'm playing it, right? And and like you say it's like having I mean it's both sides of the coin. It's like when uh, when I know something about the setting or if someone tells me something that they know about the setting, it's like that makes me feel more like I'm immersed in the story uh, unless but it, on the flip side, it's like the the out of character discussion about deities and stuff like that. That kicks me out of it. 
And uh, unfortunately mm. for me, it's like like the, the you know that kind of stuff is fine when you're not playing, but it's like when you're playing the game, it's like I want to be in the game. So, yeah, but yeah. I, I agree. I think that's a great point. Well, it's interesting. Um, it actually brings to mind something that happened recently. So we're in the process right now of um, uh, basically prepping the second season of Dark Moon Bell. Um, and by prepping, I mean we've actually recorded a number of episodes uh, pertaining towards the oh. second season of Dark Moon Bell. So that that's will be making its return here shortly. Fantastic. You know, just in time for Christmas. <laughs> <laughs> Happy holidays, everyone. Happy holidays. Merry Christmas, everyone. I mean, it everyone. is pre-October. Or whatever so. you celebrate. Yeah, it is pre-October, as, as Rachel's been saying since June. <laughs> <laughs> I may have had Halloween decorations out for a while. <laughs> she loves her spooky season. But yeah, we were recently, we were playing through that, and we got to a point where there was some more dwarf stuff involved, and I play a dwarven uh, champion of the uh the dwarven pantheon the sky i believe it's sky sky seekers um i don't have my notes here in front of me because they actually um expanded the dwarven pantheon uh information with the new high helm book uh a very good book i very much enjoy it um which even hits on things like here's the dwarven pantheon that everyone worships sans Drosgar, right um because it's hard to be a champion and follow an evil deity as part of your pantheon and at one point i uh something came up and everyone's like hey grim do you know anything about this and I looked to Ross, I was like, okay, so, you know, should I roll a religion on this? And he's like, okay, yeah, go ahead and roll a religion. I, he rolled a religion. And it'll probably be cut from the episode, but Ross just kind of looked to me and was just like, I'm assuming that you, you know, this is about this thing. Um, I'm assuming that you know about this. And I was like, well, yes, I do. I have read extensively on dwarves <laughs> and all things fine, finely dwarven. Um, and so he was just like, okay, well, go, and, go ahead and explain what you know, and I'll let you know if you need to add anything. And so because of my yeah. knowledge of the setting, I was just like, well, let me tell you about like why, you know, Drosgar and Torag have this difference and, you know, how Drosgar, you know, cheated while like trying to, to basically claiming other people's work as his own because uh, he plagiarizes <laughs> in addition to all the other terrible Drosgar things. Right. And um, we do not support plagiarism <laughs> no, on no. FTP podcast. No, no, <laughs> no. He used AI art and passed it off as his own. How um, dare how dare. How dare he? But uh, that does sound like a Drosgar thing. <laughs> Modern day Drosgar. <laughs> and that was one of those elements where I was able to use my setting knowledge uh, because it is something that my character would know. But because of the, the mechanics of the game, you do sometimes have to have that. I do need to make a skill check because um, I've been in games before where a player will write something into their backstory and then go, I should know about this because um, I traveled extensively in the Darklands. And so anytime we run into a creature from the Darklands or the Underdark or what have you, um, I should know something about these because I spent like five years traveling down here. It's like, okay, well, what's your Dungeoneering score? Well, I have no ranks in Dungeoneering. It's like, then you get the difference of the character's mechanics don't right. reflect the information that the player has or even has and wants the character to know. Right. So that gets into one of those like, all right, well, you may have worked, uh, it's that thing of like, you may have worked in a, a business for a while. Like, for an example, I worked in the uh, the semiconductor industry for a little bit when I was um, in my early 20s. And so I know how crystals are grown for um, the creation of computer chips. You know, I know how Epi is applied to them for the creation of uh, high, high-end computer chips and all the rest of that. But I don't actually know how a computer chip is made. Right. So you, you sometimes have to get into that idea of like, well, yeah, you traveled in the Darklands and you fought a thing. And it's just like, what is this monster facing? It's like, I'm not sure. I called them squid heads. Right. 
Yeah. Right. <laughs> right. This one was hammer and tongs because he has like a, a chisel shaped thing and a claw on the other. I don't know. But yeah, no, I, I agree. And especially for systems uh, like Pathfinder uh, and and pretty much every game that we're going to talk about, I would imagine it, it. I think that like as part of like, I don't know if everyone does. I mean, I suspect most people at least have a discussion about what kind of character they're going to play. Right. And yeah. I think that as part of discussing, like if, if, if I were to play in a game and you were say we're the referee and, and I said, I'm going to play this character and you wanted to ask me about them. And I'm like, well, I have this experience doing this. It's like, you could say at that point as the referee, it's like, Hey, or the uh, game master, sorry, the terminology I'm used to calling referees, referees. <laughs> I see um, it on your shirt. Yeah, yes. it's a setting neutral thing. And also that's how old uh, Dungeon Master used to be called referees too. But uh, mm. anyway, in any case, um, you could say, well, uh, represent that on your character. Like, you know, you, you I, I'm fine with you having the experience of doing it mm-hmm. and, and gaining a mechanical benefit, but you need to, to make your character fit that concept a little bit. Like put a rank in Dungeoneering, for example, like in the case of yeah. aberrations and stuff, right? I yeah. think that's a perfectly great, I think it's a good way to do it. And, it. and in fact, if you're the player, it's like that's the way you represent it in a system where there's a mechanical system to resolve knowledge. It's like that's how you do it is by putting ranks in things. I had yeah. a fighter who was had two ranks in sleight of hand or something like that or pick or uh, open lock this is third edition so mm-hmm. it's like and i don't know why it's like he was just a, a thief like he was a street urchin and i was like <laughs> well i just want him to have like a criminal background and so at that time like in third edition you know there was we could have made backgrounds but there was no system to do it yeah so the guy so my friend who was running the game he's like well just give him like two ranks and some skill like one of the thief skills yeah and i'm like okay and uh that was how we did it so now, uh, i I do have almost an idea for like not putting ranks in something. Okay. Um, and it actually uh, ties back to a session I went to at my very first PaizoCon. Um, and it was, they, gosh, I wish I could remember who the people were, but they were talking about various religions and how oh, yes. a, per, how, how like a layman person in a small town is going to worship something versus, you know, like if you're in the Vatican. You know, yeah, the, sure. the, the way you approach it is vastly different. So, like, maybe you have, like, a small town character who doesn't really know anything about this religion, but this is how they worshipped in their place. Or, you know, and it, you could apply that to anything, not just religion. But, like, that almost concept of, like, that's part of your character, that they don't have ranks in this, and they don't follow it correctly, but that's part of the character. Like, yeah. I could see getting around that. But, again, that... Uh, you have to really commit to not having that knowledge then. Yeah. yeah. That's, yeah. it's a very good example. Cause it is like, you know, many people will profess to, um, to basically having a, a knowledge set or a skill set that don't necessarily completely understand, you know, there's basically an entire, you know, having worked in a, a professional, you know, business career and going into office buildings, you know, there are the people that, that BS their ways through meetings. Um, that are like, I don't really know what's made here. Um, I just, um, you know, it's that idea of being the sales guy that it's like, I'm selling a thing. Um, no dig on anyone out there that's in sales, but it's, uh, I'm selling a product that I've actually never used. I used to sell salsa and I don't like salsa. I was dang good at it. It's true. Rachel abhors all condiments. Um, (laughs) Pickles, salsa. Yeah. Anyway, that's (laughs) another topic for another time. Yeah. Patreon stretch goal. Patreon Uh, stretch goal. Make a list Um, of everything Rachel is Exactly. Rachel's for verboten list. That'll be great. Rachel's extraordinarily limited cookbook. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, that, that actually, well, that hits on um, 
Uh, I'll rapid fire through three things, actually. Uh, one that hits on the uh, the stat block from 3.0 um, Forgotten Realms for Elminster. Yes. Where they're just like, he's a level one rogue, level three cleric, and like 15 <laughs> or, you know, like 20 something levels of wizard. And I think there's a level fighter thrown in there because it's yeah. like, oh, he went through all these other phases. Uh, two, the, I do love the background uh, rules for background skills, uh, which yes. is something I routinely implement because that does give you additional skills to just throw into things to go. This character would know um, underwater basket weaving. Well, you, we had an example of that in uh, our Legacy of Fire game where my character grew up in the area but didn't know the language because I was a fighter and I didn't have an extra skill for linguistics. <laughs> so when we had the background skills, it's like, oh, then I actually know the language of the place <laughs> that I have grown up my entire life. Like, yeah, because otherwise sense. I only know common. So I, I learned the common <laughs> tongue. I think yeah. that's when I started implementing the rule that um, you could take common or you could trade it off for your regional language. Yeah. So it's just like I don't actually know the, the trade tongue. I only know my own language right yeah which is also something i've always done with uh with commoners in a region that i'm just like commoners don't get common for free they get their regional language just because it reinforces the reason to know a um a regional language as opposed to the common tongue right um because again it's it's kind of if you're going back harking back to um medieval and renaissance period europe which is kind of what that's based off of it's the whole idea of common is german um it right. was a trade language it was everyone knew a little bit of german and so, you know, yeah, you can communicate enough to go, I want three of this thing, but uh, not much past that. Right. You, you can't discuss philosophy in a trade language. I mean, that's... No. Not, not, even, well. the philosoph <laughs> not even the philosophy of trade, really. It's like, I, <laughs> unless you're True. doing it in very base terms, I think. Yeah. But in, in any Abadar case... will debate you on that. But, uh, <laughs> trade is the philosophy, my boy. <laughs> it's true. It's self-fulfilling. Yes. <laughs> so the, the third thing, actually, that um, that, that hit on... Uh, very quick anecdote, because uh, uh, we do have some other interesting things to get to here, but I tend to do twists and changes, um, as most people that follow the podcast know, um, usually to even the character creation or the inception side of an adventure. Uh, so again, War for the Crown, having everyone have to be nobles um, from one of eight families. Um, and when I did the, uh, when I started the adventure path for Strange Aeons, um, spoiler alert for the player's guide to Strange Aeons, is your character wakes up with amnesia with no idea who you are. Um, the player's guide somewhat establishes it as you don't remember the last four or five years of your life. <coughs> and I decided to take that and expand it and have it be the characters have complete amnesia. And the way that I decided to do this was <laughs> I had everyone stat out their characters and then I had everyone send me their characters and then I gave the character sheets out to everyone else. So for instance, yeah. you know, uh, Heather wrote her or wrote down her character and then I handed that off I think to Rachel actually no I wrote Jessica's you wrote Jessica's so someone else so you actually went into the game knowing nothing of your character's backstory uh, literally so when I made a bullet point for them I said these are the things you should focus on so like what is their class what is their ancestry I sent out a couple things as like here's the linguistic origins of the character's name because they still remembered their name yeah heather chose a very french sounding name it had a french origin to it so it's like so she's probably from galt or one of the nations yeah, surrounding galt too, because yeah. it is very akin to that uh, right. much akin to rachel's character was from galt because her character's name was like that then it was a lot of like what can you take away from the fact that this person has a rank in acrobatics what can you yeah. take away from the fact that this person has a rank in knowledge nobility I, I so, think I threw a wrench into somebody's because I had like something for log rolling. 
Yeah. <laughs> yeah, because you, like you, you had the background. <laughs> you chose the, the background uh, trait that was like log roller that gave you, I think, acrobatics or something as a class skill. Yeah. <laughs> so it's like, all right, so so tell me about this French log roller. <laughs> <laughs> And honestly, that's something I feel like people could really do with their own characters, where like once you're done statting out the character, if you really take a step back and look at this and go like, how does my character have these skills? That is the idea of basically, again, kind of getting into that like setting knowledge uh, affecting the character in a good way. It's that idea of going like, okay, well, where are logging communities? I mean, there's Darkmoon Vell. I mean, that's a logging community. So maybe instead of your characters from Galt, maybe your family are expatriates of Galt that are now living in the Dark Moon Vell area and you're working for the Lumber Consortium there because you know about this stuff right. uh, and kind of informing the way that your character is based on um, all of these these elements of the setting that you know. Really kind of harkening back to the fact that uh, much like nuclear weapons that we we're talking about earlier, um, <laughs> you know, the, the danger is in misusing them. Yeah. You know, as far as nuclear power entirely is concerned, you know, the danger is in its misuse and not um, inherent to it. Right. There's a lot of endangered just inherent to nuclear power in general, but um, it can also be misused, much like knowing things about the setting and then abusing that or uh, letting that influence your character in a negative way. I think the, the important part is that you, and, and this is something I do, because again, I, I probably have the least meta knowledge out of most people because I don't GM or anything, but anytime I choose a feat or a trait or whatever, I try to explain why would my character have that knowledge? And, and yes. I think some people like don't think about that. They just see this, you know, list on a page and they're like, "Ooh, that sounds good. That sounds good. That sounds good. And it does create these, you know, really interesting characters. But I think it's even more interesting to then go back and try to explain why your character has that, because I'm not saying that you can't. I have lived a very eclectic life and I know plenty of <laughs> other people that have lived very eclectic lives. I have a random assortment of knowledge. If you can't tell from the random <laughs> crap on my wall as it is, you know, I think it's that's almost the fun part. Like when you get to, uh, you know, getting into that that knowledge of what your character has, like, why do I know yeah. this? And maybe even just in your backstory, you don't necessarily need to write 10 pages of why your character knows something. Bullet points are fine. Be like, oh, yeah, yeah I know this because of this. You know, like I know how to log roll because um, I got dared to do it, you know, when there was a storm yeah. and a bunch of logs rolled through the town one time. You know, you can have these small stories that make a big impact. And I think that's the fun part. Yeah. yeah. I, I'd say you're doing it right. Like I honestly, so I am guilty. That's why I raised my hand while you're talking. I am guilty <laughs> of doing exactly what you said. I look at the list and I'm like, oh yeah, that looks good. And I put that on my character sheet and I never think about like, it's like I have like this duality of uh, a, a dual, uh, an approach where I split the character creation from like the backstory. And, and I think that your argument for uh, making them a cohesive process like thinking of it as i'm yeah. making the character why did i take this feat or how do i justify this feat or whatever as yeah. as it relates to my character i think is a better approach like in fact it's good enough that i wrote it down because oh, i'm gonna oh. use that and also also <laughs> separating Rick's, crunch from fluff yeah 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 i i think it's great i think they're great concepts that's a I, I you guys have solved it all right well that was a great stream thanks everyone for now uh we're gonna be here for a little bit longer uh -huh. Um, well, that actually that gets that segues nicely into the next section that I wanted to talk about of uh, player knowledge versus character knowledge. And um, I feel like that is rules knowledge. And some of this goes into the uh, the breaking of the fourth wall and the basically a player using knowledge of the rules to have characters behave in a way that they normally would not. Um, An example that I gave before we got on is knowing the maximum amount of falling damage that you can take. 
So basically knowing it's like, okay, well, you know, all right, I need to quickly get down there to help my friends, but they're at the bottom of this 200 foot cliff. It's like, all right, so it's 200 feet, it's 10 points of falling damage, or it's, uh, you know, uh, 1d6 points of falling damage for 10 feet that I fall. So I'm looking at 20d6, the maximum damage for 20d6 is 120 points of damage. That's really gonna suck, but also, you know, I'm a fighter, I'm a, you know, 18th level fighter with 200 hit points. So, and the cleric's down there. So, right. okay, guys, I'm going to go ahead and just jump off the cliff, fall 200 feet, smack face down onto the ground. And then uh, you just cast the heal spell on me before the monsters get a turn. And that is the point where you look at it and you go, hold on. No rational person uh-uh. would jump off of a 200 foot cliff because a rational person doesn't know how many hit points that they have. Yeah. So you're now acting completely out of character because you know, the mechanics, you know, or one of the the most commonly, I think, thrown around example of kind of meta knowledge and using meta knowledge of um, the fact that you're playing a game is you run into a troll and you fight a troll and every player at one point has fought. If you've been playing Pathfinder or D&D or something like that for more than a year, you probably <laughs> fought a troll at some point. And again, you go, oh, it's a troll. Well, we've killed it, but it's not actually dead. We need to burn it. Right. And so that's setting knowledge that's knowledge of the world that you know the game master goes well do you have knowledge local because this is a giant and you need to roll to see whether or not you know you need to use fire and so you 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 can't recreate that first encounter no like it's impossible because once you have that knowledge it kind of sticks with you especially since that first encounter with the troll when you don't know you need to burn it and then it comes back and you're like oh crap uh that is ingrained in you forever um, yeah. But unfortunately, it does kind of it's it's a detriment for future troll fights because you you automatically get that anxiety of like, oh, crap, we need to do this, yeah. this and this. And then you have to remember, my character doesn't know this. I need to make it till I make it. Right. <laughs> and and you sometimes fall into this. Uh, what I kind of see it as is a, a backwards justification. You'll have a player say, OK, well. Uh, I can't quite get to him, so I'm going to go ahead and pull out an alchemist fire, you know, from my pack and throw it. And it's like, well, we've been playing this game and you haven't thrown a single, you haven't pulled an alchemist fire, let alone dropped your weapon to pull an alchemist fire and throw one in 20 sessions. And so now it's just like, well, I have a justification for why I'm doing this action that otherwise would seem weird um, because I can't reach him. So I'm going to pull out an alchemist fire. Um, or the classic justification of it's like suddenly the wizard's using all of his fire and acid spells instead of the cone of cold that he was using previously <laughs> of going like, okay, I, I can see where there is a logical rationale that this character could be making these decisions and it might be an unconscious use of meta knowledge that you're going to go ahead and use fire specifically for this thing. Now, the, the common exception, exception uh, that I'll make is most people after it's like, okay, well, we killed this thing and then it got back up. A common response from everyone, even before they know anything about trolls, is, okay, well, let's just burn it. Like, you know, let's let's yeah. let it on fire. Maybe that will stop it. Right. Pour holy water over it and do a jig or something. So, like, once you reach that point, you can go, okay, well, it makes sense that after it got back up that one time, you pour fire all over it. You know, it's a similar thing with the Grave Knights, that it's like, um, I... Put it in a bag. <laughs> yeah, Funny, I'll make it a very quick anecdote here, but when I was running an adventure path, um, uh, and apparently this this gets thrown around a lot because there's another podcast out there that apparently ran into a very similar problem once, that they defeated a Grave Knight, and they went, okay, well, that's done. And he was wearing cool magic armor, so they threw it into a bag. And no one identified that it was a Grave Knight, and so they kept going around through this dungeon, a very large dungeon, a dungeon that they had to rest enough times that gave the Grave Knight time. 
And so the grave knight <laughs> woke back up. I had it written down that this is when it woke back up. I went, maybe I was being a very cruel game master, but I do tend to like to go for um, a certain degree of realism. And so the grave knight woke back up inside of the bag, uh, inside of his armor. And so he dug around and was like, oh, here's my sword because it's magical. So they threw that in the bag also. It's like, I don't know what all these rings do, but I'm just going to go ahead and shove these rings on my hands and throw this uh-huh. necklaces on and all the rest. So he came out like blinged out wearing like a cloak of elven kind and these new boots and like rings of protection. Amulus. So he was a harder fight in the second round because they opened, they just finished with the fight. It was very cruel. And I admit yes. that in, in retrospect, they just yes, finished with the fight. And while the party's getting healed up off towards the side, I believe it was, I can't remember if it was Jordan's character. I think it was. It was either Jess or Jordan. I can't yeah. remember. Went, okay, well, I'm going to loot the bodies. It's like, okay, so you collect all the loot. You open up your bag of holding to throw all of this in there. Um, and then the the Grave Knight had just been standing there because he's undead, just ready in action, just like, I'm waiting. I'm waiting. <laughs> yep. And so the moment it opened, just shunk, great sword. Um, and then I he think pops it was out Jordan. of the bag. <laughs> Yeah. And uh, and then the fight resumed. And after the fight was over, because, uh, again, the players had no and this was the players had no knowledge in addition to the characters of what this was. Yeah. Right. Uh, they finished beating him like, I what do, we do. I think he's connected to the the armor, maybe. And so they're just like, you know what? We don't know what it is, but what what did he have on him the first time? He had this ring, this armor and this sword. And they took all of it and they just chunked it over the castle walls into the moat. And we're like, let's just finish this before he comes back. <laughs> and they're like, he's still out there somewhere, but, <laughs> but we got away. I don't think we ever did go back <laughs> I love for that. It. No, you never did. You're just like, that's someone else's problem now. You know, let's just, we have to finish. And it was actually a timer thing at that point where they're like, we need to finish this in the next two days or something. Because... He's nearly killed us twice now. Yeah. And it was a heck of a fight. Twice. That is awesome. That is but, awesome. And, and that is, that's one of those occasions where um, once you have that knowledge, because they now know what a Grave Knight is, that when you run into it later, it's just like, okay, well, even if none of us make the skill check to actually know what this thing is, now we're anticipating, well, we put that armor in that bag. So we, as the players now know, like, Let's make sure to heal up to full health before we open our bag to put our loot in. Right. <laughs> sort of thing. Right. It is a, it's sometimes a challenge with separating um, rules knowledge or the rules knowledge from the actual role playing side of the game. I do think that there are some positives sometimes to it. One of the quintessential examples I can give is uh, any any party will charge headfirst into a dragon fight, but throw a single rust monster out. And suddenly everyone's like, oh, no, I'm terrified now. Like now, now I'm facing something that, you know, it's one thing to do hit point damage to me. Right. But to my sword. Right. Mm. I think with the first time we fought a rust monster, I was the only one that didn't know what it was. And yeah. so like it in and out of like character, like my character didn't know. I didn't know. And so I was like, yeah, this is fine. And then I think you destroyed my sword and I was distraught. Yeah. This oh. <laughs> is like, no, it just gobbles up your sword and keeps going. And uh yeah, Ross ran one once also that it was a similar thing where, you know, it was once it's, I think we identified it in that case. And that's one of those cases of like the rules, you know, getting in there of like, I've identified this thing. So now I know what to do against it because, you know, my character knows. But I do think sometimes like, you know, there is that, uh, actually another anecdote. I know I'm going on a lot of these, so I apologize, uh, especially for games that uh, aren't even recorded. Uh, but I was running it. I think I mentioned this maybe before once on one of the streams. I ran a game where um, the amount of noise that the party made was important. And I knew that I could go about the usual thing of saying like, okay, like, you know, noise is an important thing or or just like making a comment about like you hear a distant splashing sound and 
you know. But what I decided to do instead was I got a glass bowl and I got a bunch of glass beads that I knew would make a lot of noise. Uh-huh. And so I just <laughs> let the party and I was just sitting there going like, OK, so, yeah, you walk in here and then the party's carrying on a conversation. I'm just kind of checking my watch and then I pick up one of these things and I drop it in this bowl. It makes this loud clang and everyone stopped and looked at me. I was like, no, go on. And like, um, oh, OK. And so they get into the next room and they get into a fight. And then after the fight's over, I pick up like two beads and I drop them in a thing. And I was just like, and then what I'm doing the description, I'm like, very distantly, you hear like a splashing sound and all the rest of that stuff. You have this <laughs> disconcerting feeling like something's watching or something's uh, listening to you. And I think it was when they were spelled, like, I was like, okay. And then one of them spell cast and I picked up a thing and dropped it in. And Jordan, like, almost stood up from his chair and pointed at me. It's like, it's any time we make noise. It's like, <laughs> yes. Um, and that's meta knowledge because the characters, you know, the characters are hearing the sounds. And the players, because they're not in the world, aren't maybe going like, that splashing sound is increasing. Even right. if I'm saying it as the game master. But when I have this, like, oh, look, visual. I'm actually doing this, yeah, you know, this visual, this audible thing that's happening. Suddenly they're like, this is important. Um, or the classic, the game master rolling dice behind the screen. Right. And the player's God, not knowing. You do that. It's like, did Brick just roll for something? It's like, I eh, don't worry about it. Right. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, so it's hard. So I, I love the second example, like the the glass beads and the glass dish. I think that's a, a great idea because sometimes because like with the dice, the problem is, is like you don't want to. It, it's it's I mean, it's a fraught subject because people I, I mean, I have done my best. Like I play in a game where I am playing a different character in the same dungeon that I am running, that I'm getting another character played in a different group. It's like some kind of tournament sort of nonsense, right? Mm-hmm. And and so I'm the only person who's played in the dungeon before, and yeah. I'm playing with a guy who's never played it before. So I have to play the game like I have never been in this dungeon before. So yeah. Yeah. I literally don't make any decisions unless he asks me about something. And then if I know something, I will choose, even though it's stupid, I will choose the opposite. If I have to make a decision, I will choose the opposite yes. of what I know is right. Yeah. Yes. Because I don't I don't know myself. I don't know how else to subvert my bias of no, my unconscious bias of knowing the result. Right. It's like with the trolls. It's like mm-hmm. on the one hand, I mean, Rachel's right. It's like that kind of thing or the grave night. It's like those are memorable encounters. Like I'm yes. sure yeah. anyone who's fought against a, who's had to deal with a troll or anything that comes back. It's like they will never forget. You know, mm-hmm. they may not remember every little detail, but they will never forget the overall encounter. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And they'll um, never forget being rendered. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, and so that is the it, it, it's like, but but every character, you know, shouldn't inherit that knowledge. Exactly. And, yes. Yeah. And, and, it's, and it's like, how can you represent that? Because, of course, you can't help yourself, even if you try to, unless you do something that is willfully like stupid or uh, in my case, like doing the exact opposite of what I normally would do. Like normally I would be like, I'm just going to I'm just going to knock this troll down until he stops moving and then yeah. and hope someone else makes this knowledge check or, or try to make it myself, I guess, because I don't know what else to do. It's like with the dice, it's the same thing. It's like when you communicate um to the players that you're doing something it's like they can latch on to it mm-hmm. uh and and use that information to alter their behavior even if they don't mean to like i've I, i've heard people talk i haven't actually seen it happen or heard it happen i guess i should say but like like the item placement like especially in adventure paths like this item is in this region therefore the author wants us to use this item in an upcoming yes. encounter and it's like uh well so i would not make that assumption 
No. And, and if I was the referee, I, I, I would try to think of a way to disabuse them of that. But it's like it's kind of tough because sometimes they do need to use it. Right. Yeah. But that yeah. isn't necessarily why it's there. Yeah. Uh, a, a good example, honestly, is um, Hell's Rebels. Uh, recently, for those of you following our Hell's Rebels, uh, the Find the Path Presents feed, uh, if you want some second edition, it's a great story. You know, I've made the conversion notes for that and um, trying to get the most those out as quickly as I can. But the uh, as far as the conversion, all the rest of that stuff is concerned, the the story does include a number of occasions for you gain access to things. It's like this will obviously here's a ring of swimming, here's a potion of water breathing, here's here's a lot of things to signpost um, that water will be eventually a thing. Right. And one of the things that I, I ended up doing with that, because I am, maybe I'll use the term notorious, um, notorious for foreshadowing, is I think people are like, water is going to be a thing, but is it going to be a thing this book? Or are we getting these items to use three or four books from now? Right. Because we never know. Yeah, and that's, that's the whole beauty of <laughs> foreshadowing a great deal, where you know that there's an ethereal an ethereal intent to um, make certain that the party has these items or has access to these items and once the party gets to that point then yeah they're going to to be able to implement them they're going to be able to use these things to help them but at the same time you don't necessarily know for certain honestly that's actually you know i think we i think we've covered a lot of like the rules knowledge and the the benefits and the 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 negatives to it but i think you made a great segue there into uh, what i think is maybe the the third uh, primary topic here pertaining towards um, this idea of separating character knowledge from player knowledge. And that is um, understanding the game, understanding storytelling. So there's a certain level of uh, tropes that come with running games. Um, we we're just talking about that, you know, you're saying dropping items here and the game master basically telegraphing to the players, this thing is going to come up. Because in the real world, there is no such thing as foreshadowing. You know, in the real world, the... Sorry, spoiler alert here for a movie from the 90s. Um, and uh, was it City of Angels? Is that correct? I think that's right. Um, Keanu Reeves, uh, or not, no? Anyway, very long story short, Angel comes down from heaven to basically be with a, um, a, a mortal woman and gives that's up being Nicholas an angel. Nicholas Cage. Nicholas Cage, thank you. Yeah. I don't know why. I, had, I think I had Keanu Reeves in my head because I was thinking about um, the story you were telling me recently about the... Walk in the clouds. Walk in the clouds. Um, but yeah, you know, Nick Cage comes down. He's, uh, you know, to basically give up his immortal life. And um, spoiler alert again for that movie, then she's bicycling and gets hit by a truck and dies. And I think a lot of people felt cheated because you would expect something like a character, major character's death to be foreshadowed. And it wasn't. Right. It just came out of left field. And then that character's gone now. And so um, that's a great example of how in storytelling, you don't always have to foreshadow or foreshadowing can work against things. But in the case of using storytelling knowledge, most players will never go, okay, well, there's a sudden like, you know, end of book six, there's a completely new boss that we haven't been working for towards this entire time. Right. Or, you know, oh, we were giving a whole bunch of stuff for underwater exploration and we never ran into a single underwater thing. Right. So what were all these rings of swimming and potions of water breathing for? You know, or again, like the classic thing of just going like, I don't trust NPCs because an NPC betrayed me. Right. Um, one so time in one once. game. One, right. Yeah. 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 I, and I, that's been a reoccurring joke where it's just like an NPC betrays the party in Mummy's Mask. And it's like, we never trust an NPC again. <laughs> right. Right, because it happened one time. But not even this character, yeah. not this campaign, not this. Yeah, I know you. Ignoring mean. the twenty NPCs that helped you up until this point, to just go. We never. Right. 
Exactly. So honestly, this is as far as separating player knowledge and uh, character knowledge is concerned. I feel like this last one is the one I'm the most guilty of um, falling prey to. I read extensively. I love to read. And there are a lot of times when I'm following an adventure path and I'm like, well, this just makes sense. This would be the next logical step of the story for it to continue to progress. It's going to transition uh, now from like, okay, well, we're this NPC keeps showing up and the game master keeps playing this NPC. So despite the fact that they don't have anything to do with the story that we're doing right now, they're going to be pertinent soon. Right. Yeah. So I need to, to know this character. You know, I did a whole thing with my version of uh, Rise of the Rune Lords where I seriously played up a minor NPC in book one uh, because he became a primary antagonist in book two. And I really wanted to play up the idea of this uh, this character, his backstory, so that the players actually appreciated the, uh, honestly, that's the way I played it, the tragedy of his fall. Right. And so if you as a player are looking, there's oftentimes an unconscious bias to go, well, I see that the game master is giving focus to this. Ergo, this must be important. Ergo, um, I'm going to give focus to this, even though for my character, you know, this is just, this is the one occasion that I've role played. But my character has been talking to people all day. This is just right. one of 20 people I've talked to today. Right. Yeah. But because the game master decided to run this session in this one, oh, I walked into this place and then described a person standing behind me in line at the Chipotle or something, that this <laughs> is the character I'm going to latch onto because the game master wouldn't have described them if they're not important. Right. Yeah, it almost ends up putting more work on the GM because you almost need to like set up a few red herrings to almost trick your players into not latching on to those. Yes. <laughs> yeah, so I I mean that's a tough. So I want I mean I agree. It's it's a it's tough. And I wonder if maybe uh I have been thinking about this wrong from the start. So, uh full disclosure, I tend to run sandbox games, right? Like I mm -hmm. will use modules and stuff, but I let the setting be player dictated basically, for good or bad. Uh yeah. about half and half. Um <laughs> And so it's like I don't I play it like War for the Crown. Uh, was my favorite yeah. uh, adventure path, but I haven't actually played. I played Hell's Rebels and uh, Hell's Vengeance and War for the Crown, and um, the the one that was in Dragon, but was not actually like in the 3.5 days. Was it the Shattered Shackled Coast or something? Uh, there's where it was. Shackled City, Savage Tide, and Age of Worms. Yeah, so I played some of those from in the 3.5 days, but uh, yeah. but but in any case. But I want I so I don't have a lot like I, it sounds like you guys have extensive experience like your group has extensive experience with adventure pass right? I would and, say I would say extensive yeah. is an accurate description. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, through a few. <laughs> it, perhaps an understatement. So maybe like the storytelling aspect is part of the adventure path thing. Like maybe I'm just going to throw this out there. Maybe that's part of the enjoyment of playing is that people can expect a cadence or a, a, yeah. a type of thing. Right. And so maybe it's not something to subvert. It's like it's something to just embrace. Like, as you were saying, like when you foreshadow, like, uh, you know, the, the boss from book two in book one in his humble yeah. beginnings, it's like you foreshadow him because he's going to. And it's like that to me, that sounds like actually perhaps the only reasonable way to deal with it, because otherwise, like Rachel was saying, it's like trying to come up. It's like, oh, my God, I have to have 50 NPCs and I got to think about every single thing and I got to drop them all in here. And the players <laughs> are like, we're tired of yeah. talking to people. Right. There's um, a balance. Yeah. So yeah. I don't know. Maybe maybe just within the to meta meta, maybe think of the the type of game, the adventure path type of game and realize that the gameplay for an adventure path may not necessarily be the same as gameplay for like a series of unconnected 
uh, adventures. Like if someone were just using like the old modules or stuff in a camp- yeah. in a homebrew campaign, you know, maybe maybe it wouldn't work the same way. Maybe yeah, it shouldn't even you, be run the same way. I don't know. You raised a very interesting thing there that I didn't even think about when we began talking about this uh, this subject in general. Is players, even if you're a game master that homebrews, um, you know, much as you're kind of saying that you let the players dictate the story. Yeah. Players over the time, you know, we are, we as humans, um, I'm sure Rachel can attest to this because, you know, she's been an educator her entire life. We as humans are geared towards pattern recognition. Yep. And so I think that there might be a certain like, you know, people that have been playing with Gary for years are just like, okay, well, I know Gary's stories. Yep. So <laughs> if if Gary's dropping a thing here that, um, you know, oh, you're you're going down the road and all the rest of that stuff and you see a strange glint on a hill in the distance, like that's that's him signposting a quest. Right. Like that's let's veer off the road and head over there and see what's going on, you know, out here in the middle of nowhere. And it might not even be foreshadowing or anything like that. That might be this is the actual quest you want to do or it might just be. Uh, they seem kind of bored, and um, I've got a map here for an abandoned farmhouse, so maybe there's a weird ghostly light coming from the farmhouse. Right. But I think uh, as, a, as a player, you begin to grow accustomed to this is the storytelling style of the, again, I'm very guilty of, um, you know, I, would, I say guilty, but I've, I'm a huge fan of using foreshadowing. And so um, a lot of my players are used to, like, if I mention something going, I think I use it so much foreshadowing and, uh, as Rachel was saying, red herrings, that it's difficult for them to tell, is this actually going to be a thing or is this just Rick's describing the setting because I just overload them with things. But what I was going to say as far as the adventure paths are concerned, the interesting thing with the adventure paths is they're written by six different people. Right. Yeah. And so um, there's a reoccurring joke and uh, I've gotten to meet the man in person. He's a, he's extraordinarily nice man, Uh, but there's a reoccurring joke where they're like, this is a Greg Vaughn book. (laughs) (laughs) Because this feels sure. like a Greg Vaughn book. Jordan called him an a hole right to his face, and he yeah. shrugged and was like, "Yeah." Like, and then yeah. they shook hands, and it was like a whole thing. Like he's a really nice. He's guy, an extraordinarily actually. nice guy, but he's also known for writing dungeons that are very brutal. difficult. They are very brutal. Um, and so, like, but it was you for feel a while so triumphant when you finish yeah. it. You know, it's like, oh well, we reached the last book of Rise of the Rune Lords. Is this a Greg Vaughn book? But it's like, yeah, yeah. You reach book five of Curse of the Crimson Throne is this it's like yeah this is greg vaughn again you know you you reach book five of uh legacy of fire this feels like a greg vaughn book doesn't it um or they'll even do the same thing with uh they'll just go like did crystal fraser write this one right like, <laughs> yeah yeah, yeah it's crystal fraser right as again players you start to recognize the um the tropes it's that whole idea of um what is it that there are only 12 stories and we're all telling variations of these same 12 stories. Right. And you can tell who, who leans toward to which kind of stories, which is how we can be like, oh, this yeah. is a Greg Vaughn. This is a Crystal Frazier. This is a Luis Loza. You know, like we can kind of we can kind of pick up on the, the breadcrumbs. Right. <laughs> yeah. And it's funny because um, as a storyteller, as a referee, as a game master, as whatever you are, you can take those elements and subvert them. And. You know, of course, you're often taught that, you know, if there's a trope in literature, you should be subverting that trope anyway. You know, um, I don't necessarily believe in that. I do believe that tropes exist for a reason as a literary shorthand to just go. Sometimes this character doesn't need a great deal of development and everything else. So you can have your Obi-Wan old wise mentor figure that just shows up and is an old wise mentor figure and you don't need to subvert the trope. It's fine. Right. There are archetypes for a reason. There right. are archetypes exactly. for a reason. Yeah. Exactly. But at the same time, I think as a game master, you can almost um, 
Uh, this is me always sitting in the game master seat. So uh, I apologize to one of my players who's sitting here. Uh, but players are also <laughs> predictable, um, much as game masters are. Right. I routinely foreshadow things. Um, it's what I'm just kind of known for. That and overly grandiose uh, purple prose descriptions of things sometimes when I really get into it. I blame Edgar Allan Poe for that. <laughs> but at the same time, I can sit there and go, um, not not to be mean or anything else to poke fun at my my friends or whatever. It's like, I know that Ross isn't going to play a bad person. Right. So even if Ross is like, I'm playing neutral, you know, I'm chaotic neutral for this character. And this Maybe character is like, if I throw in like, you know, there's an injured child on the side of the road. That's all the hook I know I need for Ross. Right. Because Ross, the player, you know, it will, it's a storytelling knowledge that will influence his character. Ross, the player cannot help it. Right. There's, it's a reoccurring joke that um, anytime a magical item pops up, Heather's usually the first one to throw her name into the hat for the magic item. Right. Because that's just Heather's style. It's immediately like, that could be remotely useful to me. Right. And so as a, as a game master, I know that if I put a, a tantalizingly useful magic item up as the reward for it, Heather's going to go for it. It's like, don't do it, Heather. Don't do it. <laughs> you know, just off to the side of the road in this misty veil. There's, it's just out of reach. Um, you know, like she'll sit there and try to figure out a way to, uh, to make it happen. Um, or again, if I throw any animal period into a game, Jessica will immediately be sympathetic with the animal. Um, even if her character shouldn't be an animal lover, right. uh, because the player is an animal lover. Right. And so I think that there is an, an element of, uh, again, using the term in the, the least negative way possible metagame where, uh, players can see the, uh, um, how did I describe it? I think once I'd heard it described as well, uh, the strings that control the system, you know, it's like, you can see where the plot is going. You can go like, I know I'm here. I know I'm, I'm, my destination's over here. And so because of my rules knowledge, because of my knowledge of the storytelling convention of the games that I'm playing, I know that that's how I'm going to get there. And I sometimes think that it can be both a positive and a negative as far as um, the storytelling elements of it are concerned, because Paizo is somewhat notorious for uh, writing adventure paths that don't foreshadow the main villain or really let you even know who the main villain is. Uh, Curse of the Crimson Throne is somewhat notorious for this until the party is in a position where they can no longer confront them or right. really never letting them get to that point where they can... Uh, Rise of the Rune Lords, famously, you don't even find out the main villain's name for like four books. And I think that's because of the idea that if you let the players know, well, there's nothing stopping them from just running over there and facing the main bad guy. Yeah. Um, just going, well, they're right up there. And um, I, you know, like, let's go ahead and run up there and get ourselves killed against this 20th level character. Right. <laughs> but I think you can, to a degree, take advantage of, as long as you provide players a way out, take advantage of knowledge of storytelling. So, um, you know, using, and again, I'm going to try to avoid spoilers for this, but using an adventure path as an example, um, that there's an AP that you find out that the ruler of a city um, I mean, heck, you could even use this as an argument in Hell's Rebels, uh, that the ruler of the city is evil. And it's like, we need to be able to take this person down. And then it's like, well, we know that from word go. So it's like, why don't we just march in there and kill him? And for the players, they go, because that's not where the story is. Obviously, we need to gain levels and gain experience and gain better equipment and all the rest of that stuff. And as long as you as the game has to go, well, don't forget that they're in a castle surrounded by knights loyal to them. Right. It's like, oh, yeah, we are outnumbered like 100 to 1. So, all right, now I've got a justification for why my character won't just rush in there and get myself killed. Right. Yeah. 
you know, but even the players then recognize, you know, that you can you can establish a main villain that early on. Again, Hell's Rebels, Barzillai from the word go. It's just like yeah. he's a terrifying figure. And you know that you need support. You need backup before you try to go in and face this guy. We need a rebellion. Yeah, you need to build the rebellion before <laughs> you actually try to tackle this threat. Yeah. Yeah, well, especially, I mean, again, no spoilers, but especially because you actually have to um, get some of the populace on your side, too. Because, I mean, it's like it's yeah. not just yeah. Thrun, right? It's like there's there's a portion of the city that is happy with him being in charge. Yeah. And it's like, and you either need to convert them or get a group of people who can stand up to those people because it's just yeah. you guys, right? So I'm sorry, yeah. I didn't mean to interrupt you, but oh no, no, but, no. But like, I think you're making a great point, though. That's yeah, an extraordinary valid point where story. you you do reach that point where you go like, I mean, obviously you they want to eventually stop this person, but at the same time they go well, you know, the common populace goes, is it worth it? Is it worth upsetting yeah. the ship? Right. Um, don't rock the boat even if the boat's in stormy waters already, because you'll just make the situation worse for everyone. Yeah. And again, I think um, I think sometimes letting, making certain that the players are aware that this is a storytelling trope, even if the characters themselves shouldn't be aware of, oh, well, I'm a 15th level character, so now I should be good to go and start book six and try to take on the main bad guy, subverting those expectations. And not to say that Paizo does a bad job, because there oftentimes are like last minute twists in there. But, you know, in Mummy's Mask, I name dropped Hakatep way earlier than the Adventure Path ever does, because I wanted the players to know who the villain was and understand the villain's motivations. And I think the players eventually just kind of accepted that things like, you know, sudden visions and everything else of this guy's past were storytelling shorthand for me to go understand where this guy's coming from. He's your enemy. But you can at the very least understand his motivations. Yeah. So I think you can kind of play around with the idea of um, character knowledge versus uh, player knowledge and really get into these um, between both uh, the setting, the rules and storytelling conventions, really get into this idea of uh, it's not always negative and right. people always take it as a negative. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. Before we even started, you were talking about, uh, you know, how Framing it as metagaming isn't necessarily accurate because people immediately get that knee-jerk reaction to the idea of metagaming, that it's abusing knowledge. Right. But you can actually take this knowledge as you know and use it to make better or more interesting characters, use it to uh, inform the decision of the characters in-game in a way that really exemplifies like what makes the storytelling medium so good. Yeah. That idea of just going, you know, this is what my character would do. And that's oftentimes used in a justification for, well, I'm a thief, so I'm going to rob from the party or something. This is what my character would do. Right. Uh, but just saying like, uh, yeah, I'm not going to jump off of a cliff because my character would not jump off of a 200 foot cliff. Right. Because he knows yeah. he's going to die if, he, if yeah. he falls that far. Right. Because no. because he knows three weeks ago when he was five levels lower, that would have killed him. Right. <laughs> yeah. Right. Like- why do I think that's not going to kill me now? <laughs> right. Well, it's why I, I'm not going to say specifically. I mean, it's already out, but I don't know who's listened to it. But I had a character who fell from a very, very, <laughs> very <laughs> um, far way up. And um, it was more terrifying because I knew that, you know, Rick had this rule about, you know, oh, there's no cap on this damage. You're going to get hurt. Yeah. You know, and I, I almost think that level... This is a, I don't know, a mean way to say it, but there's almost that level of fear that's necessary in yeah. order yes. for you to play your character in a way that that character would actually act. 
Yeah. It's it's funny because we <laughs> talked about that before we even got on and you talked about that there. And uh, I think it was like the first or second comment on here. Uh, I believe it was uh, Eagle King um, said it's like after we tackle, you know, talking about metagaming and all the rest of that stuff, you know, let's talk capped or uncapped falling down. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> it just keeps coming back around to that. Of, right. Uh, because that gets into that whole meta knowledge. Um, and I do think sometimes it is necessary to instill a certain degree of, uh, of quote unquote fear. Um, in the players because you know you do want the character you do want the characters to react to their environment that gets into an entire different side thing that i could maybe uh do for october where um i have a controversial opinion about um the horror games um i love horror but i feel like um dnd and pathfinder and a lot of these games struggle um in comparison to something like call of cthulhu Cthulhu. yep yeah absolutely with, with horror because the entire idea behind it's kind of the difference between the works of H.P. Lovecraft and the works of Robert E. Howard. Um, Robert E. Howard is wish fulfillment. It's, you know, I'm Conan the Barbarian. You know, I grab things and you know, rip their heads off with my iron thews. Wow. And uh, <laughs> yeah, well, naked right. for this entire story. Exactly. Um, and that's kind of what, you know, Pathfinder D&D really kind of comes back to. And um, because it is that power fantasy, it is that like I'm an extraordinarily powerful individual. And so much as we're saying earlier, you know, players aren't afraid of dragons. They're more afraid of rust monsters because they'll lose treasure and lose power. It's that thing of like when they're fighting a ghost, it's like ghosts are more terrifying because I can hit they can hit me with level drain and I'm going to be weaker for multiple fights after that. You know, hit point damage doesn't matter as much as ability score damage. Right. And so whether or not. You know, Pathfinder or D&D can really do horror because horror kind of requires that your character be vulnerable. And the whole purpose of D20 games, basically, is that these characters are extraordinarily strong. Yeah, I I agree with you 100%. I don't think you can do it effectively. Uh, I mean, you can make a, a good person, yeah. a person who's invested in the setting can make the setting scary itself. But yeah. but I mean, you know, seriously, it's like you think of a c- characters, especially with the with the uh, the leveling of, of undead. It's like, can you imagine like having to fight the risen corpse of your neighbor yeah right and yeah. in, in what world is that considered regular behavior right and yet yeah i mean it's the it's the the standard right like i've never seen a and d game um ever use any kind of thing where it's like well your character has got a, a mental issue because they just had to put down the risen corpses of like the people who live in their village or something it's like mm-hmm. yeah it it's a horrific concept but the, the system doesn't support it. And so I, yeah. I, I agree. I'd love to hear. Actually, I hope you do that topic at some point. That sounds like a great topic. Yeah, it might be a really fun one to do just in time for, uh, for Halloween spooky too. season, as yeah. Rachel always loves to say. Yes. I mean, let's be honest. Spooky season is year round for me, but <laughs> sure. I, like, but my la- classroom just had Halloween decorations up all the time. So. But yeah, <laughs> at least now it's a f- now you can officially show it, right? Like without, that, that without any true. kind of censure or anything. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and, and that kind of uh, hits, um, you know, one final point that I'll make pertaining towards that, uh, because I think it kind of encapsulates two of the uh, the elements that we we're talking about, which is um, one of the problems that I think uh, that D&D and Pathfinder run into is the assumption, and fortunately my group is pretty good at avoiding this, but um, the assumption that if if this is a fight, like if we're walking into this room and it's a fight, then it's a fight that we are supposed to win. Right. And it's not always true. Right. But it's that like unless the dice rolls go poorly or don't go in our favor, um, we're expected to walk in and we're expected to win every single fight. And to some level, there is that meta knowledge. There is that rules knowledge. There is that storytelling knowledge that says, "Okay, I'm just going to go in and get into a fight. And 
you know, every time that I open a door and it's like, there's a 25 foot tall monster in here or whatever else it is. It's like, I mean, yeah, that's scary. But as a game, as you know, since I'm playing this game, I'm expected to be able to defeat this 20 foot tall monster because right. it's going to be within one to four levels of my challenge rating. It might be a very difficult fight, right. but I'm expected to win every time. And I think the quintessential difference with uh, with that versus, you know, Call of Cthulhu or something like that is there's a routine thing of just going, no, if you, if you get to this point, you're expected to run. You're expected right. to run or die. Yeah. Um, you know, you're it's the rare person that's brave enough to turn a boat around and crash into Cthulhu's stomach. Um, and it worked out great in the Call of Cthulhu, spoiler alert for a hundred year old story, <laughs> but it worked out great in Call of Cthulhu. Um, is that where the Little Mermaid got the idea for Ursula? Oh, maybe. Actually, I've I, never I've never made that connection before. I didn't either. That's interesting. But <laughs> also, actually, oh my gosh! Like seriously, because think of the the, the whole tentacle. Anyway, go ahead and finish your point. That's yeah, yeah, excellent, that's... Rachel. Holy crap! We'll do a completely different podcast about yeah. the correlation between the Call of Cthulhu and the Little Mermaid. Yes, <laughs> yes. Someone needs to write one some... of these. I am more of an expert on. Guess which yep. one? <laughs> it's like my partner is a Cthulhu, is a... and and his uh, his house in Rila just. Uh, singing poor unfortunate souls to himself yes it's a good song you know yeah. song. <laughs> but but yeah and i well i think that really is the kind of the whole point there which is that uh, rachel just completely threw me <laughs> Sorry. i mean that is like a mind-blowing uh, thing like i i need to see a graduate student epiphany. paper on it yeah <laughs> i i need to see a grad student paper on it so it's my partner is like a grad is a phd candidate so it's like i'm used to reading like scholarly papers on stuff and it's oh like, yeah i i need to see a paper on this because someone needs to really look at this at at, at the you know dig into it because yes. that yeah. is wow they overlap there wow Rachel. um yeah yes, yes. that's crazy <laughs> well honestly i don't think we can really cap that um I don't, so I don't as, see as far as as far as the separating You're character knowledge and player knowledge you know um, really, it all just comes down to is Ursula Cthulhu? Yeah. <laughs> or a facet of it. Yeah. Or a facet, a, a reimagining, as it were. Um, yeah. But yeah, so that, that whole idea of, you know, whether or not you're supposed to win every fight, I do think kind of comes back into that where, um, you know, yeah. sometimes separating character knowledge from player knowledge is important. Um, but sometimes it is important to just go ahead and use your player knowledge. Um, however, use it wisely, yes, as Indiana never, Jones has taught us. Yes, Choose never wisely. abuse it. Yeah. Also, I think like I've gotten a sense, uh, maybe this is just me who's just now figuring it out entirely possible, but I've gotten a sense that actually I, th I think there's a way like if, if you can get the right people, which is mm -hmm. quintessential to any kind of game, Hard. right? Yeah. But but I mean, it's kind of like the, the cornerstone of playing a good ongoing game. But if you get the right people, referee side and player side, and they're willing to to cooperate in their aspects of the game without the players mm. necessarily knowing the story like in the case of an adventure path but realizing they're playing a story yeah. and and it's like everyone could work together within their little sphere to make it to integrate it and both sides could benefit mm. like you were saying earlier about like the npcs and stuff it's like if the players know that this stuff is coming along it isn't necessarily bad that they know it yeah. uh you know because maybe they can make their characters work towards it so i i honestly and i think that i mean you you guys have helped me work out this concept in my mind to the point where I'm like, I know it's not inherently bad, but I, I have a hard time getting arguments about why someone might, you know, what parts, because it's a very complex topic, right? Yeah. Yes. It's like the rules are our interface into the character, into the world the characters live in. So metagame is a, is a part of the game. It's like, we have to understand yes. the way the game works to play the game. But, but I, 
regardless, I, I we beat this topic to death, but uh, <laughs> but I, I hadn't really thought about people working together uh, using outside knowledge of the even of the story without yeah. no, necessarily knowing the specifics and thinking how they could work together and, and actually make it all work like even tighter. Yeah. Oh, uh, well, good. And I'll throw out one last thing before we move on, because uh, I do want to get to the Q&A section here. Yeah. But you just kind of hit on something that uh, that that triggered a memory for me. Um, again, I don't know if you've ever had the opportunity. I have not uh, to play the uh, the Pendragon RPG. Uh, no, I don't think so. Yeah, I have friends who have, but I have not. It's it's always been it's been a game that I've always wanted to play. Um, the great Pendragon campaign and all the way. It appeals to me because it's a long form storytelling. You know, you're telling uh, the the progression of these characters over the course of 80 years. Um, and so you're actually, when you're playing these characters, it's assumed that you're going to lose characters. Either the characters are going to retire because they're knights of the round table uh, eventually, um, or the characters are going to be killed. And uh, two interesting things that they do in this are, one, um, your character doesn't have mental traits. Uh, all of your character's traits that are on your character sheet are your character's physical abilities or the skills that they've learned, like falconry or like courtly etiquette, etc. Right. The reason that they do that is they're just like, well, the mind of the character is the player. So, you know, there isn't a trait to determine, well, this character is extraordinarily intelligent, so they should be good at puzzles right. or riddles or something like that. It's just like the player is the mind of this character. Right. And um, the player in this aspect is almost a meta um, mind for the entire family, because when your character dies, you don't just roll up another random character. You play another character of the same family. Right. That's somehow related to the previous character. The way that it works is when you when you make a new character, that character is assumed to have been listening to the stories of this other person, their tales of adventure, have access to their journals, have been being writing and exchanging letters with this character. So, for instance, Gary, if you had a character and your character died, you'd bring in a new character and that new character would know the entire story up until that point. Even if the story is 25 years long that that previous character was going through, he jumps in and goes, well, yeah, you know, remember back in the day when, you know, my uncle fought against, you know, or fought side by side with, you know, Uther against the Saxons on the Eastern Front over in, you know, Silchester? It'd be like, oh, yes, 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 I do remember that because I too have heard the legends of my ancestors battling over there. And so I think that's kind of a game right there that marries the idea of character and player knowledge being one and the same because it's assumed that the player knows everything. So even if you run into it's like, oh, well, we fought, you know, fought a dragon once before and I learned this thing on how to defeat dragons. And that's family knowledge that has now been passed on to my future characters. So all of my character, because I, the player, know it. All right. of my characters are going to know it. Right. And then over time, it turns into telephone and eventually down the line, it's <laughs> skewed into something else, which is even more fun. So <laughs> so the fun thing about that is there is not a check to recall knowledge in that game. Um, so, for instance, if you just go, what did I learn? Like if you, the player, if Rachel's sitting there, it's like, what did I learn about dragons whenever we fought them like 20 sessions or 50 sessions ago or something like that? But I'm if you, the training. player, can't remember, then your character can't remember either. <laughs> That's terrible because yeah. so, I can't remember anything. So yes, <laughs> it's not Rachel's entire family line happen. has notorious bad memories. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but I love the idea of that because it basically means, you know, it's it's almost a game that is intended to only be played once. Right. Kind of like that whole David Cage idea of anything from Quantic Dreams, if you're a fan of things like uh, Heavy Rain or anything like that, is you're supposed to experience the story. And, you know, you're not supposed to go like, I'm trying to separate my character knowledge from my player knowledge or anything like that. It's just, no, you know everything that any of your characters have ever done. And you know everything that they knew. 
um, to the extent of your own memory. So, you know, if you're a good note taker, then your family's really good at memory of like what to do. It's just like, oh, I'm, I'm digging, I'm sifting back through my memories of trying to figure this out. Or heck, even maybe the, the family has a journal that they pass down from night to night. The problem is, like, is if Jordan me... wrote the journal, you can't read it. Well, hopefully Jordan could read his own, but that would be his own problem. Right, right. <laughs> you know, you wouldn't keep a story journal for the entire table. It would just be your character. Just for you, yeah. Just for your family, yeah. So, yeah, I think uh, I think really, you know, I think we've kind of just hit on all the major points right there. And I'm curious what the uh, the fans have to, you know, say about doing character knowledge versus player knowledge or basically this uh, this overview, this, this meta view, if you will, of meta, since meta just means uh, outside or beyond. So, uh, yeah, Rates, do we have any uh, questions? Um, only two that I, I pulled from the uh, chat, but if anybody has any more, you know, toss them in there now. Yeah. Uh, this first one's not really a, a question so much as a statement that I thought we could maybe hit on again. We kind of hit on it, but uh, it's from, I want to say, Kate Run. Uh, I'm interested in hearing folks' thoughts about how traits and backgrounds and ancestries can impact what does and doesn't feel like meta-knowledge versus common knowledge even beyond what PCs pick for skill ranks. Well, as far as traits and backgrounds and all the rest of that, I think that there's an assumption that you have common knowledge. So for instance, if you took a trait that gave you something like, um, you know, if you took a campaign trait that said, yeah, I'm in Cantargo and I'm interested in researching the, the Silver Ravens, the leader of the Silver Ravens that went missing, then I think it would be safe to assume for that character that that character has basic knowledge um, and first edition D or first edition Pathfinder and you know D and D three point five three point oh, it was always that idea of anything that is base anything that's basic knowledge is a DC ten. So for instance, um, you know if a character has a trait that gives them, um, or even if that character just writes down or, or that player writes down on the character sheet that that character worships Abadar, then you would assume that that character has basic knowledge of Abadar. So. You wouldn't need to go, well, you have to make a religion role to know that uh, high priests of Abadar are called bankers. Right. Or yeah. arch bankers in that case. And it's just like, no, you're a follower of Abadar. You know that they're called arch bankers. Uh, you would have to make a religion check to know something like esoteric lore pertaining towards the Church of Abadar. Or you might have to know or make a religion check to know, is there a temple of Abadar in the city we're going to? Right. Yeah. So you don't know like where every single Church of Abadar is, but you do know the basic tenets of the god. Yeah, it's kind of my thought on it. Yeah, I think it's good. I mean, the truth is, is is like a good rule of thumb, at least from the old days and Pathfinder First Edition too. I think it's like if your character can pass a DC ten check, like a take can take ten and get a DC ten check. It's like they probably yeah. and it's common knowledge they probably can figure it out, right? Yeah. Like, uh, and I think uh, was it Kate Run? Is that what you said, Rachel? Like you I think, think so. yeah, yeah. Kate Run. Yeah. yeah. So like to their question, like about like ancestries and stuff, it's like. Um, so I haven't played second edition much. So it's like my familiarity with the rules is very much only having read it. But like in first edition, like you have like racial traits or like I said, be ancestral traits now for like elves or like dwarves are the ones I always think of because dwarves not only have like things like dark vision and stuff, they have stone cunning, but they also have like certain attack bonuses against certain species and defenses yeah. against certain species. And while that may not communicate to, okay, I don't know how orcs live. But it's like I might know a few things about how orcs like fight or how they yeah. might might even yeah. how they hunt dwarves, for example. Right. Yeah. So it's like that would be up to like your game master to figure out the specifics of it. But I think you could work with them to help, you know, it could be like, hey, would my character actually know about this? Because I am a dwarf and we have fought orcs, you know, or my I live in a place, you know, as we were working to the surface. It's like we fought yeah. them all the time. 
So I think yeah. that's one way that you can ap- approach it. Yeah, in second edition, they uh, take a lot of the, it was a very controversial thing when second edition first came out because they took a lot of the things that you would basically just get for playing a dwarf and then put them in feats right. that you would take. So right. you'd have some things um, that you'd specifically like, like stone cunning or things like that, that it's like, or the ability to move unencumbered in armor and things like that, that right. are now feats that you have to take. Right. Um, I have an interesting idea. It's something that occurred to me a couple of times I've never implemented. I might in the future um, because uh, sometimes I do like, you know, house rules and all the rest of that stuff. We're using the free archetype rules in um, our playthrough of Hell's Rebels uh, because I've just kind of tied that into the rebellion mechanics. Right. One of the feats that every ancestry or many of the ancestries have is, um, you know, a, for instance, for dwarves, it's a, you know, here's a dwarf feat that's dwarven lore. And those are almost always one of my favorite feats to take because it gives you training in two skills that are connected to your character's ancestry. So uh, for dwarves, I believe it's craft and religion. And it also gives you a lore skill, um, which is its own knowledge skill, just called dwarf lore. Right. And I almost feel like every character should maybe get a free feat at character creation that is, you can take the lore feat for your ancestry. Um, or an additional, maybe just give the skilled feat for free to humans because no one really takes, everyone takes natural ambition for humans. Right, um, Because it's just a categorically better feat than right. every, any, almost anything else. But give the free lore feat for anyone's ancestry just so that they have those extra skills because I don't think giving people two extra trained skills unbalances the game much. And giving elves elf lore, I mean, that's literally what Heather uses for her character being a professor of elven studies in Hell's Rebels. Right. It's just like, I know elves. <laughs> right. Um, oh. And I teach that. Yeah. And maybe actually, uh, as a side note, allowing either that or the adopted feat for free at first level. So yeah. that if your character is like, I'm a dwarf, but I was raised by gnomes, then it's like, well, yeah, you instead of getting dwarf lore, you get gnome lore yeah. because you're raised by gnomes and you know a lot about gnomes, despite the fact that you're a dwarf. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's great. Like in the old days, we used to I used to give people like I would let them pick like a profession skill for free, like in third edition mm-hmm. or three point five, because it's yeah. like I just wanted to give them something so that they felt like they were tied to it, right? Or yeah. or could could be tied to the game that we're actually playing. And I think I think that's a great way to do it too. It also makes them gets them involved in the character, right? It's like yeah, you yes. know stuff. Yeah. People can turn to you, meaning the other players can turn to you and ask you questions about what dwarves know or what or in the case of the the transplant dwarf, what gnomes know. Right. Yeah. Cause it's like yeah. they come up to you. Hey, what can you tell me about fight, fighting orcs? And it's like, well, I, I can tell you about what it's like to live in the Shining Hills. I, I've never fought orcs before. It's like yeah. we, we we had like forest animals that we talked to and stuff like that, you know, yeah. or I can yeah. tell you about the, the bleaching, even though it will yeah. never happen to me. <laughs> right. So it, it, it yeah, is. I don't have to worry about yeah. it. I can I can still be a tech turn, you know, dwarf without having to worry about, you know, dying. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, again, like I said, we've been recently doing stuff with the uh, the return of uh, the Tales from Dark Moon Valley. And the sheer number of times that it's just like everyone turns towards Grimm. So what about this dwarf thing? (laughs) Yeah, there's a lot of dwarf stuff going on here. And yeah, it's it's always it's kind of a fun thing because like that right there in answer to uh, to Kate Run's kind of question that right there does a a great job of um, giving the characters the giving the character knowledge that the player would probably have. And even as a game master, just kind of saying like, look, Gary, I know that you've read through the gnomes of galarian book so while you're playing this gnome and your character has gnome lore then go ahead and just say things right um and if it's going to be so obscure that your character doesn't know it 
then it's probably so obscure that you as the player don't know this specific thing pertaining towards gnomes that's in this adventure path. Yeah. You know, it's like, yeah. oh, you can get rid of the bleaching with a, you know, a mixture of, you know, salt and vinegar. <laughs> Who do? <laughs> just get what you do is you just get rose petals, you grind them up, yeah, you, grind you them put up. them in an emulsion, and then you apply it to you. It totally fixes it, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The problem with the bleaching is just not enough exfoliation. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. So yeah, thank you, Kate Run, for the uh, the insightful question. Yep. Uh, our second uh, it's actually two questions uh, by okay. Spritem. Okay, I think I'm saying that correctly. Uh, is there a mechanical way to reward players who take the flavor and more feats that allowed the G to, uh, and more feats that allowed GM exposition and knowledge into the game, which I think is what you guys just talked about, really? Uh, yeah, I mean, there are a lot of ways. Um, so, I mean, my, my mind immediately goes to uh, in second edition, there's the dubious knowledge feat also that it's just like, you know, even if you fell, you get one piece of true and one piece of false information. Right. It's just like. I just know things. Right. Yeah, because the, the second half of the question was, or are the feats already powerful enough for the players? Yeah. I think it depends on the feat, to be honest. Yeah. <laughs> Part of the reason I like the background skills in first edition is they do state, you know, let's let's put all the cards on the table here. Um, all back, all skills are not created equal. Right. Perception is not equal. There's a reason why perception isn't even a skill in second edition. It's just something everyone has because yeah. everyone would always take, if you have perception as a class skill, you put max ranks into it because you're going to roll it more than anything else. Yep. Yeah. If it were a skill, definitely the most, uh, possibly the most important, right? Because yeah. you use and, it for almost everything. Yeah. yeah. In every situation. Go ahead though. I'm sorry. Oh, no, no, no. I was, well, that, that hits on that whole idea of like, these are, these are the extraordinarily important skills. And so if, if you have skills that are really important, then you by nature have skills that are not as important. And yep. I don't think giving people, I remember some people commented early on um, when they did the, when they were looking at our character sheets, when we're doing mummy's mask, that I give my players 25 points in point by. And that's because I've really noticed that the difference in points just means that they don't tend to dump stat. Um, right. Everyone, whatever they want their highest stat to be, it's going to be that. Right. Um, it's whether or not all of their other stats suck. And in my mind, a character having a 12 intelligence or having and getting an extra skill point or having a 12 wisdom and getting one higher on perception and will saves doesn't break the game. It doesn't unbalance the game, but it allows the players to really play with the, the mechanics and not go, well, I have to have an eight charisma because otherwise I can't have an 18 strength. Right. So it, you know, encourages the players to make these more balanced characters. I think the same is true with giving people background skills. Um, the only thing that I have is a requirement that isn't on the background skill uh, rules is I require that um, one of the two free skill points they get is in a craft, profession, or perform. I don't care which one it is, right? but it has to be in one of those three. Yeah. Your character yeah. has to know a craft or know a profession or know some form of performance. Yeah, It works out great because it makes these characters that are a little bit more... Again, Octavius being a carpenter has come up a couple of times in Tyrant's Grasp. Right. Yep. Where it's just like, no, well, Octavius knows carpentry. He knows how to do carpentry. Right. It means that Heather can play a character that has, you know, a perform or, you know, any of the characters in, um, in War for the Crown can take a rank in perform dance because they're nobles. Right. And should probably know how to dance. Yeah. Um, but it doesn't penalize them. It doesn't mean that they're taking a skill point away and going, that's a skill like that's a skill point I could have put in knowledge dungeoneering so that I know about aberrations. Right. Um, now it's a skill point that's actually giving them something for it. This is a little off topic. Um, and I'll get down off my high horse after this. <laughs> um, 
it's a little off topic, but I feel like one of the biggest problems in tabletop gaming as a whole is the adversarial relationship between game masters and players. Um, I feel I've stated on so many occasions that I am an unbiased arbiter of the rules. I just tell you what story happens. I'm not trying to kill players. I'm not trying to do all the rest of this stuff. And simultaneously, I don't think players are trying to break my game right. by being overpowered. Or Only when we're about to die. When when everyone's like, about to die, people start to dig into my minutia. Desperation yeah. does rise up, but sure. it's, you know, there's <laughs> it's that not like an, an all the time thing. Right. It's like okay, so if I delay and then you take a five foot step and then you pick them up and you can ready an action to hand them off to me, so I don't have to move first, so that I can throw them over my shoulder as a move action and then move away to get out of the radius. Um, but real quick, let's all delay until after the wizard goes to cast haste in the party so that we can escape. <laughs> right. That's great. But again, the problem is, is that people are always worried that if I give the players, um, it's that idea. If I give the players an extra skill point, will it break the game? Right. If you give it's a like, mouse a cookie. Yeah. <laughs> right. You know, and there, there are players out there that I'm sure if it's just like, well, if you're giving me two background skills, why don't you give me five background skills so that I can make the character I want to make? Because the character I want to make is a one man band and I need five different performances to do that. Right. The number of players out there that are going to do that are few and far between. Right. And it, I think it really goes back to, um, as we so often say on the podcast, uh, communication, trust between the players and the game masters. Everyone's here to have a good time and to tell a good story. Yes. Yeah. So, yeah. If you're not there for that, you should probably <clears throat> do some reflection. Yeah. Or find something else to do. Right. Yeah. <laughs> but, but yeah, I, I, I mean, I 100% agree. That was that's why I, I had, was struck by the medic when we were talking earlier about metagaming and working using it collaboratively because even though, I mean, especially because I run sandbox games, sometimes I don't even use published, any published material, and I just am 100% player driven. It's like I absolutely require the players to do, you know, to trust that I'm not going to abuse them. And and they can't, I mean, the truth is, is as a referee, they can't abuse me, right? Yeah. It's like they can, it, they can do every minutia they want, but it's like, at the end of the day, it's like if I was the kind of person who's going to punish them for something, it's like I could find a way in the game to punish them. And I so, yeah. you know, it's yeah. like you just don't do that. <laughs> I just, that's not that's not how you keep people playing with you. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah. The, the the simple fact of the matter is, you know, I've made this joke on so many occasions with the with the party and they know I wouldn't follow through with it, which is why it's a joke. That it's like if it was actually a fight between <laughs> players and game masters, the game master would win yeah. right? because I'm able to just say, you know, it's like okay, well, you've kind of upset me and everything else. It's like you step outside and a bolt comes down out of the blue and hits you for 10d6 points of damage. Go ahead and roll a reflex save. Right. It's like, but I'm third level. Go ahead and roll a reflex save. Sorry. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You made the mistake of stepping outside in metal armor. Yeah. <laughs> the end. Yeah. yeah. That's that's yeah. what I'm saying. It's like, you know, it's like, I, I mean, I can understand, like some people enjoy the adversarial kind of thing. I, I personally don't. Like I always, I'm fine with having my character be a guy, but it's like, uh, their own person i guess i should say yeah but but i'm also i'm in a group of people right and even if we haven't mm -hmm. quite even if the characters haven't quite figured out the reason i as a person know that i have to play with other people and so my character needs to kind of work with them even like in the i think like jessica like with cyprus cyprus is awesome because she is like she feels like she is like a, a broken person pardon me and she has like very little in common. I mean, she, you know, one yeah. thing in common with the plate with the other characters, but she works with them. Yeah. yeah. The enemy of my enemy is my friend. You know that you come up with a, a good idea of why to um, to work together because it's yeah. a collaborative, collaborative storytelling. Exactly. Thing. 
Well, and then you get to learn too about the characters and 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 die and and, it, and then in turn becomes more immersive. Right. Yeah. The whole goal. and it, again, yeah. it, it gets back to that entire idea of like knowing the story, knowing what's going to function as a player, knowing what is going to make a character work well with the group, especially. And that's always the like it's always tragic to lose a character. No one likes to lose a character. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I've had a couple of characters die heroic deaths and I've been fine with that. You know, yeah. it's always when you get that arbitrary death that I'm like, yeah, really, really? This kobold <laughs> got a lucky perfect 20 on me. <laughs> right. The question now is that is right. that foreshadowing for Tales from Dark Moonville? Who knows? <laughs> uh, we'll find out. <laughs> As I like to say, it only takes one bad dice roll. Yeah, it, it, that's you're always just you're, you're just right. one bad dice roll away from death sometimes. The great thing with bringing in a second character is oftentimes is you are going to use the meta knowledge of uh, it's that joke that is made so often. You're going to use the meta knowledge of what you know about the story, what you know about everything that's going on to make a character that ties in with the the actual things that are going on in the story. <laughs> right. Right. Ideally. It's a reoccurring joke in the Find the Path podcast um, that it's like, OK, great. But, you know, whoever dies, your next character has to have trap finding. Because we keep stumbling across traps. <laughs> yeah. No one can find them. So I don't care what you're doing. Just whatever the next thing you're playing has trap finding. Right. Um, or that whole, like, we made the joke a couple times in Tales from Dark Moon Bell, where we're like, we made these characters when Pathfinder 2nd Edition first came out. And uh, yeah, whoever dies first really needs to play a cleric. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah. It's yeah. like you take the knowledge of the, of what the party needs, right? And and, yeah. and yeah. incorporate that into your new character. I, I myself have yeah. done that actually many times, yeah. especially the first time you play with someone or play with the group. I know you guys don't have this problem anymore since you've all, you know, you're accustomed to each other. But the first time I played in a game, it's like I, would, I made like some generic fighter, right? Simple character to play. I play him three sessions. I'm like, this guy sucks. He's not bad. Like he's a great fighter, like mid-max, blah, blah, blah. He's not fun to play. He doesn't relate to anyone. So... I, I was like, he just goes off. I'm going to make a new character. I make a new character. Yeah. He totally fits in. We all had like, you know, it was like great from then on. So yeah. it's like before he well, just didn't do anything. So so I'm, I'm going to go ahead and state this. And uh, it's not just because one, she's here. Um, and two, I'm married to her. <laughs> but um, one of the great things about Rachel is the fact that, um, and Rachel will be the first to deflect this as being, uh, you know, her, her tension and all the rest of that stuff. Rachel is always the last person to make a character. Yes. You know, Heather's always the first. Right. Heather will know exactly what character she wants. I'm pretty sure she has a binder that has her character ideas for every single adventure path. Um, <laughs> Heather will always be so. the first. And then Jess and Jordan will come in with some character ideas. And then Rachel will just go, what does the group need? Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's why, uh, you know, she. I think you were making a joke recently where you're like, whatever happens next, I just don't want to be the healer. Because like, the party keeps not making healers. And so I have to keep coming in and be like, I'm the medic for this one. I'm the cleric for this one. <laughs> like right. I'm the. I, you know. I at least get to like have fun with it because like my character in Hell's Rebels, Vittoria, is the quote unquote healer, healer. but in a like forensic non magic yeah. kind of way, which is really fun. And then I have my cleric character, so I get to do the magic side of it. But yeah, yeah you know, I don't always want to be the healer. Yeah, it's, it's <laughs> but like I do. I do like playing the healer. It's just. Yeah. I like playing other things too. Yeah. Well, and, the, and Victoria has other priorities, right? It's like, mm -hmm. yes, I can't yeah. patch you guys up, but you're taking me away from important work. Yes. Yeah. That's odd. Finding odd things. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> but, but yeah, and it all kind of goes back to this idea of, um, you know, Rachel wants to make a character that, again, it's, it's characters from inception almost always are using player knowledge um, to inform the characters because it's just, you know, I'm a player. I know, like, 
I was fortunate that I knew nothing about, you know, the the stories that we're going to do for Tales from Dark Moon Vale. And I just stumbled into playing a dwarf because I flip and love dwarves. Right. Um, and yeah. so, it, but me playing a dwarf is, I'm sitting there sometimes going like, how would we know any of this stuff without dwarven lore? Um, any of the background for this area that I'm sure Ross would have found another way to present it. But at the same time, it's it's again, you know, Rachel's going into it with this uh, this player knowledge of this is what the composition of these people that eventually this character is going to be traveling with what is going to be beneficial to this group of people mm-hmm. with uh, Tyrant's Grass for instance the very beginning for Tyrant's Grass not going into spoilers or anything like that I warned the party I basically flat out told them go ahead and make your characters just be aware that your characters will not be able to buy or sell gear for the first two books of this adventure path yeah yep flat out you will not be able to buy or sell gear until book three and so I told them, it's like, if you have a specific build in mind, just understand that, like, if I need a specific weapon, you're not going to be able to rely on the fact that that weapon is going to be magical. Right. Um, you can you can have your starting gear and all the rest of that stuff, but it's going to be pure on sight. So make a character that can use any weapon. There's a reason why every one of the spellcasters are spontaneous. Yeah. Yeah. Because yeah. it was just like, I need a skew materials. Right. Like, yeah. I can't guarantee that I'm going to have a material component pouch. You know, I can't guarantee if I'm playing a wizard, I can't go to a shop and buy scrolls to add to my spell book. Right. You know, I just I'm just going to get the two when I level up and nothing else. Yeah. And then I ended up explaining away, like, why my character would have that without because I didn't know what was going to happen in that yeah. story as evidenced for anybody who listened to it. <laughs> yes, we're all aware. Um, anyway, but I was like, my character grew up in a small town that, you know, maybe trade didn't come through all the time. So like yeah. I explained it away, like the reason my character did not, you know, uh, you know, learn magic that way. Well, I'm, obviously I was spontaneous, but like even needing components for stuff, it was like, well, I'm in a small town. So like I may not be able to get everything. So it makes sense to take this feat. Yeah. 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 And and that's a great thing when you're making a character that you're just like, again, that that actually gets back into the game master trusting the player thing where um, I trust my players enough to give them more information than many people normally do. Right. Because I just go, hey, I trust my players not to abuse this knowledge, but here's some idea of what you're going to be dealing with here. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. I think that's I mean, I, I played in a, that, that where I was talking about the fighter that I ditched. Yeah. I played in a game. It was set. That character was from a game that was played in the Great Dale in Forgotten Realms. And the ref, we also, even though it wasn't a pre-published, it's like we went uh, like in game terms. I don't know how long it was. Nine months in people terms. It was meaning in, you know, us terms, it was three or four months. So like it was like eight, 12 sessions where we yeah. were not allowed to go. We never made it to a town. And it's like, yeah. it would have been super helpful, dude, if you had told us this before we started playing. <laughs> Not because we would have said, no, I don't want to, but it's like, I could have made a guy who didn't have to rely on arrows yeah. and, and not being able to manufacture his own ammunition, for example, because he's first level or whatever. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's like, it was uh, it was a challenge. I, I'm glad that I, I feel like that is great that you told them that because as a player, yeah. I would have wished to be told that sort of thing. Yeah. Again, yeah. it's that... You know, you're all working, you're all here for the very same reason. Right. You're all working together for a story. So uh, don't be afraid to let your players know things. Yep. And actually, that kind of goes in. We had a follow up question that oh, okay. kind of goes with what we've been talking about is uh, uh, from uh, Sater. Satiri? Sater? I think Satiri Sater? is what we eventually Sateri? decide. I don't remember. I'm so sorry. Um, uh, how do you balance helping players make characters tied to an AP that don't know too much? I mean, the player's guides help a great deal with making a character tied to an adventure path. Again, I 
I always just stand by, like, just sit down with the game master. I love having a session zero where people like sit down and uh, and throw out all their character ideas. That it's like this is kind of what I'm thinking for my character. This is kind of what I'm feeling that I'm wanting to do. Mechanically speaking, you know, this is um, where I'll fit in with the group and getting a full feel of uh, of what they're doing. And that's also a great time to sit there and just go like taking War for the Crown, for instance, is I typed up a uh, a four page backstory for each one of the houses for War for the Crown. Mm-hmm. Yep. And when we got ready to start doing that, I sent everyone a document that was one paragraph on each house and went, this is what you know pertaining towards these house. This is the 10,000 foot view. Um, so pick the house that appeals the most to you. And everyone did. And then we got together for, um, you know, our, our pre-planning, our session, our, our session zero to the session zero that we eventually did, um, which was the prequel stuff that we did um, when they were small children. And when we sat down for that, we... Um, I went through the entirety of the backstory for each one of these houses, uh, starting from their inception and then taking them all the way through to the current day. And that's kind of an extreme example of giving this background information, giving all the rest of this. If you're a game master that knows a lot about the setting, use that as an opportunity to kind of instruct, to let them know about the setting, to just sit there and go like, okay, so you're wanting to play a gnome. Um, and we're going to be doing this game that's set, you know, we're going to be doing Rise of the Rune Lords. It's set in Varisha. You know, well, there's a gnome community that's out in these forests here. And that all ties back into uh, making the backstories really connect. Right. Instead of just going, I'm a fighter and uh, I fight. The end. Go, okay, well, you know, but how did you learn to fight? Um, well... It's like, are you uh, are you like a farmer and you just taught yourself or did you join the guard? And it's like, yeah, I might have apprenticed with the guard for a little bit and just going, OK, well, here's the name of the guard captain of the town of Sandpoint. Um, here's a little bit of information that you'd have knowing knowing him and provide that information because that really helps to flesh out the character in the world. It helps to tie the character to the setting. Um, you know, Rachel uh, famously in one of our games said, I want to play a noble that's from Corvosa. Yes. Here, I basically went through the books and said, here are three of the houses, noble houses in Corvosa that will tie into the events of this adventure path. And she chose a specific noble house that uh, has a very underhanded reputation um, and all the rest of that stuff from old Corvosa. And so when you get into that book in, uh, in Curse of the Crimson Throne, it wasn't, hey, we need to show up here and talk to this random guy that may be this like kingpin kind of character. It was, oh, crap. Well, I guess I got to go and talk to my brother. <laughs> yeah. Um, and it, it awesome. really, you know, and, and the thing is, I, is I, I didn't think I tell famously her to make flipped that somebody off with my signet ring. Yeah. <laughs> she was a, she was a very uh, uh, trash talking uh, noble scion there of this uh, uh, specific house. Uh, I won't name it here for spoiler right. reasons. But yeah, and it, it made some very interesting revelations and all the rest of that stuff when you go on in the adventure path. And that's another occasion of those like sometimes characters having setting knowledge. Um, or players having setting knowledge that applies to the characters. It's just a good thing. Yeah. Um, so I guess to answer your question, um, Satir, it's really don't be afraid to give players knowledge. Um, trust them to not abuse it. Uh, don't You don't have to give them everything. But honestly, like if you're fine just handing out the history of Sandpoint whenever you're doing Rise of the Rune Lords and saying, you know, make a character from Sandpoint, here's the history of it. Sometimes they do include those in the player's guide. Just having them go... Uh, Oh, well, it mentioned something about an orphanage here in the player's guide. I was wondering, like, can my character be from that orphanage? And then going, all right, well, I'm going to read the two paragraphs on this orphanage. And secretly, they train assassins and just go kind of fill it out. Like, 
you know, maybe your character was being recruited for this possibly criminal organization. Yeah. Who knows? Yeah. Maybe maybe you were from that orphanage and then were away from that orphanage because you're like, I don't want to do that. Or maybe you fully embraced it, right? I mean, yeah, it's like there's decision points. But the thing is, I agree. I think like as far as it comes to helping establish characters in the in the game itself, it's like it's it's hard to to do too much. Like any anything yep. you can give the players to work with, and and so that they can work amongst themselves, it makes makes for a much more enjoyable game, in my experience. Anyway, Not yeah, sure. absolutely. It's it's kind of like the teacher concept of of like here are your options, pick one of these. Right. Yeah. <laughs> you can read Lord of the Flies or To Kill a Mockingbird. Pick one. Yep. I don't know if those are the same grade level or not, but depends on which state you're in. <laughs> That's fair. <laughs> Yeah, I suppose so. I mean, again, Gary, we asked you for an hour and a half, and as is routine for the Find the Path podcast, it took two hours. Okay. So uh, thank you so much for, uh, for you know, volunteering your uh, your valuable time. And also thank you so much for um, your continued patronage, your support, coming up with this phenomenal, you know, conversation topic that I could have spent an entire, you know, five hours talking about. Uh, heck, I think we chatted about it for like 45 minutes before we even got on where we were just talking about it. <laughs> yeah. And we didn't even talk about the same thing. So even, yeah, it was the same know. topic, but we didn't go over it again. Yeah. It's true. I need to make a behind the scenes. I need to start recording immediately when people get on and then do a behind <laughs> the scenes to the thing that we do. For all those people that are always like, you know, we really want the, you know, the behind the scenes stuff on find the path. It's like, oh, uh, yeah, you know, yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Sometimes it's not safe for audience consumption. Right. But, uh, that, in that case, everyone was perfectly polite. <laughs> FTP after dark. Yeah, it's true. <laughs> Sometimes we spiral way out of control. Yeah. Quite often. It's true. But yeah, thank you all for uh, for joining us today. And, um, you know, really, as far as the announcements are concerned, um, again, this is uh, uh, when this is being recorded right now is on the uh, 2nd of September. Uh, which actually means that um, here in, what is that, the 4th, I'm thinking that is? Yeah, Monday the 4th. Uh, well, you'll also be getting a Tyrant's Grasp episode because Tyrant's Grasp is going weekly, thanks to uh, all of you getting us up to our 5K tier reward for our Patreon. Um, so again, thank you everyone that has backed that and uh, get ready for... Uh, We've been recently watching some uh, Elden Ring videos, and uh, one of the series on those is called uh, "Prepare to Cry." Mm -hmm. It's like I feel like that would also also <laughs> somewhat work video. for Tyrants. <laughs> watch a video; they make uh, really good uh, uh, videos. But, such a good voice. But yeah, again, you know, we're going to be going weekly with uh, Tyrant's Grass, which is something that we've been working towards for a long time. Uh, we are steadily getting closer and closer to weekly Hell's Rebels, uh, at which point all of my time will disappear and yes. I will uh, lock myself to this desk. But I do love it. So um, <laughs> <laughs> hashtag give Rachel her husband back. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. They, we do get more time together now that, you know, I'm actually yes. doing the podcast work uh, as a as a more steady form of employment. But yeah, so and that's, of course, thanks to uh, to Gary. That's thanks to all of our Find the Path tier patrons. That is thanks to everyone that has checked out our Patreon and uh, and given us even a couple of dollars to check things out. Again, if you're on the fence of whether or not you might even enjoy it, we do have a $1 tier on there that will give you access to uh, 12 episodes of the uh, the podcast. And considering that's $1 for basically 15 hours of entertainment, um, you can't really beat that. Yep, that is a, that is an incredible deal. Uh, mind you, it's the sampler to get you hooked and pull you in. Um, <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm going to be blatant with uh, that. It's like again. Costco. Yeah, like Costco. <laughs> <laughs> That's how we convince you to buy three pallets of Tyrant's Grass. <laughs> exactly. Would you like to try a little Tyrant's Grass? <laughs> yes. This is a little sampler. Oh, that's delicious. Yes. Here's a 50-gallon jug. Mm -hmm. <laughs> 
So, I mean, yeah, I've thank heard you. they have good Halloween decorations. Yes. Yeah, sure. I see we're going to be going to Costco later. Um, <laughs> but yes, thank you to all of our patrons for your continued patronage, your continued support. Uh, that has been phenomenal. Um, very much enjoyed this, and it's honestly given me some good ideas for what we're going to be doing for um, our, you know, our spooky season um, on the 7th of October, which is going to be uh, here soon, just in another month. Uh, as always, again, you can check this out in the first on the first Saturday of every month. We uh, we run this even with uh, some technical limitations, as we unfortunately had today, but I think we're still able to power through and uh, and get things done. And, and let me know how that PhD paper goes on uh, Cthulhu and Ursula. Yeah, yeah, yeah I just got to find someone to do it. That, uh, yeah. I, I, that is a crazy I, – I still can't believe that you just dropped that like it was nothing. It's like, oh, I mean, have you guys thought about this? It's like, what? Get ready for our Patreon-exclusive feed examining you know, Lovecraft's influence on Disney movies. Yeah. Seriously, it's like, what is the love? Yeah, I mean, yeah. I can see the paper. Yeah. What correlations can we make between, you know, Simba and Conan the Barbarian if we're extending it to Clark Ashton or not uh, to Robert E. Howard? Yeah, I know. Um, now I got to start looking at the other ones, too. It's like, what is Beauty and the... Oh, my goodness. This how is does a Beauty can- and the Beast connect to Arthur Mackin? Yeah. What's going on? This Ugh, is a- what a uh, yeah! What a can of worms you open, Rachel. I mean, it's it's, it's just a crazy thing <laughs> because it snapped the idea snapped so well. Yeah, it, it just yeah, was it like snapped what? my brain. Yeah, it was just like <laughs> yes, get the string forward. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It all up everywhere. Anyhow. Um, but yeah, thank you, and of course, again, thank you, Gary, for joining us today. Thank you, Rachel, for being my co-host and uh, and hurting the cats that are our patrons, or our, our very least, our uh, our commenters over here. I don't know how much hurting you really did. But I didn't I'm do sure. any hurting. I just copy and pasted things. I'm and... sure considering how much we love cats that they all understand uh, how, how wonderful of a compliment that was. Yeah, there um, were at least five sightings, I, I, I think. I don't <laughs> doubt it. Kenway was my lap for most of this stream. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, until next time, good luck, Pathfinders. Bye, Bye Pathfolk. Bye, Pathfolk.